podcast this week, we have a double whammy of great British character actor goodness. It's enough to make you feel patriotic ahead of the royal wedding as Eddie Marsan talks Entebbe and Deadpool 2 and Clive Owen talks Anon and a lot of Liverpool Football Club, which is great for me, but everyone else may want to skip that bit. Plus, all the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that just went with Peter Dinklage to a rock concert and <laughs> the lead guitarist took the stage and he had forgotten his instrument. And do you know what Peter Dinklage said? No. He needs the axe. Where's the handle? Where is it? Help me find it. He needs the axe. Axe being a nickname. Yeah, no, for, we got it. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, we, we, Please stop. We're there. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which once again this week is brought to you by those wonderful people at Sky Cinema, the dedicated home for movie lovers. Uh, later in the show, I'll be pointing out a couple of movies you can watch on Sky Cinema. Just two movies from the thousand plus films that are available on demand on that ferry service, including a brand new premiere every single day, every day of the year. And if it's a leap year, one extra. That's huge. Is this a leap year? No. How did you? How do you know? Because there wasn't a leap day in February, and also because I, I it's not divisible by four. I don't know what that means. <laughs> this year is yeah. not divisible by four. Is that a leap year thing? Yes. yes. I did not know that. I See, just assume it's not just Helen O'Hara who teaches you the shit on this. Uh, what's it called? Podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Helen. Uh, it's not just Helen who teaches you shit on the Empire Podcast. Sometimes I come armed with a bit of a fact myself. Yes. Chris, you have a beautiful mind. Anyway, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, I am joined this week by three colleagues, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. And I think you know why I'm going to start with you, Helen. Uh-oh. Because uh, you went rock and roll this week, didn't you? I'm, I'm always going rock and roll, Chris. You Can you talk about this? Do you want to talk about this? We're talking about this. Uh, you have... <laughs> I got some new you got tattoos. Some t- new, new, new tattoos. Yeah, I'm currently swathed in crazy ink. In literally, well, I was going to say it's cling film actually, oh, but which yeah. I was told to keep on them today. But yeah, there's more plastic in here than on Joss Ackland's floor in *Lethal Weapon 2*. That, <laughs> <laughs> what if that was a wow. niche gag? <laughs> that was that was certainly a thing that happened. Uh, what did you get? Um, um, I got a Seamus Heaney quote um, on my on my arm, and I what got, does it say? I'm Seamus Heaney. It does not say I'm Seamus Heaney. That was that's not one of his biggest it's, one, it's, it's like the, it's the one he said the most maybe it is actually i don't know um it's 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 actually from his tombstone which makes me sound really goth but it's a line from one of his poems as well and it's walk on air against your better judgment it's a reminder not to be overly sensible about life basically no, I, I totally get you i totally get you. it's a good one i i really like the you know m- larger than life-size caps face tattoo you've had done in your entire back <laughs> kind of in an alan partridge style yeah that must have taken hours and been so you know, painful it did but it's so worth it the detailing in the beard is extraordinary it's well the beard just needed to be like just brought to life that way now on my back i actually have a bunch of stars for every marathon i've done or but they are five-pointed stars America. well they are the same shape how many how many of these marathon stars are there now? There are currently nine. Nine. Wow. Nine. Nine marathons. That's mm-hmm. hang on a second. And room to add more. I've eaten more than That's nine marathons. Two hundred and thirty four miles. Wow. That sounds good when you say it like that. I don't it think does. it can be, can yeah. it? It can be. Nine by twenty six. 
right? So 9-2 is 180. Okay, yeah. 9-6 right. yeah, yeah, is yeah. 54. Yeah. Haruki Murakami, the noted Japanese novelist, <laughs> yes. uh, he runs ultramarathons. <laughs> he does, yeah. Would you run an ultramarathon? I think that's like 60 miles. Well, it? no, actually, an ultramarathon is any, anything above a marathon. So, like, and it traditionally starts as 50k up. Um, so, like, one of the races I regularly do, the Salisbury 54321, which if anybody listening wants to do a trail race, is beautiful. Um, they actually have a 50k option that I sometimes flirt with, but I, I think I'd need to be faster because I'm extremely slow. Let's, that's let's not. crazy. Does, so, yeah. does Murakami listen to that? interminable 3,000 song-long jazz yes, playlist I have that been, you subjected me I to. I have been treating The Office to a Spotify playlist that is Haruki Murakami's entire vinyl collection. Oh. Uh, 3,480 tracks of jazz, pure jazz. Excruciating. James has been enjoying it particularly. It was, honestly... Yeah. I, yeah. I, no, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't listen to jazz doing it. But anyway, so that's, yeah. that's, but I, I'm not the only person who got a tattoo this week. Did you see this? I'm very on trend. No, mm. but should I introduce these other two people before we, we talk oh, about sure, that? Oh, sure. Yeah, because I've just realised we're, we're now, we're 10 minutes into the podcast, <laughs> roughly. And, uh, and you've said many, many things, but I haven't actually formally introduced you. Next up, we have, he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. <laughs> I mean, he just is, uh, because he is the star of the, well, it's currently the fourth biggest film of all time. Mm hmm. Uh, Jurassic World but not in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom not that we know of not that we know of. not that we know it could be a Bowfinger situation <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I saw somebody look like J.A. Bayona following me around the other night for camera crew um, I think they're saving me for part three yes and they haven't titled that one yet yes. and I think that it's going to be a kind of Ed- Jurassic World colon Edmund uh, you said it yeah yeah. but I agree with it it is, it is of course because I still haven't introduced him Edmund himself Nick DeSimlian. Hello. You? Hi. Hi, everyone. Great. I've got a feeling I've, I've kind of gone ass backwards into this podcast <laughs> a little bit. Uh, and any so, new listeners who are listening to this for the first time will have stopped. Hopefully we don't have by any. By now. You know. No, I, I hope we do. I hope oh, we have right, new yes, listeners with every yes. single podcast uh, as this boulder just keeps rolling down the hill. And James Dyer is also here, which is nice. I am. Hello. I know we've already derailed the podcast what, once, twice. I'm going to do it again. Three times <laughs> derailly. <laughs> As you know, <laughs> inspired by Infinity War, I've been, I've been re-watching, starting with Phase 1, the Marvel movies. Sure. <laughs> talking about going ass-backwards. Yeah, talking about going Infinity War, I watched and then, it, and, then then I'm, <laughs> and I'm not even doing it in reverse order. I've started from the beginning. But uh, over the bank holiday weekend, I watched uh, Thor... I watched Iron Man 2 and Thor and the first Avenger, and then Avengers. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't understand the Avengers, and I need you to explain it to me. Okay. For the following reasons. Okay, so... Loki needs... Oh, God, yes. Yes. All right. right. Lo- Loki okay. needs MacGuffin Mineral. Can we just say this is um, a, a mini Avengers spoiler special? <laughs> it's not, coming not late. Infinity War. It's but coming late. Like the 2012. Yeah. We already have one. It's available now if you want to go and listen yeah. to it. But this is the real one. Go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, Loki nicks the Tesseract. Yeah. And to open his portal to get the Chitauri through, but more yeah. on that later, he needs... Some unobtainium, yep. sort of MacGuffin mineral X, and he goes to a museum and nicks it. Then he comes out and acts like. Well, a... he gets the eye scan of the person which allows yeah. Hawkeye to nick yeah. it. But yeah. He comes out and yeah. is a bell end to the crowd, yeah. waiting, presumably, for Tony Stark to arrive. Yeah. And then he gets arrested. Yeah. Seemingly on purpose. Is that yeah. on purpose? Why? So he can tear them apart from the inside. Why? Because. He's the god of mischief. He just. The whole central section of the film on the helicarrier. Doesn't make any sense. I would, well, I would argue that the god of mischief does not need a license to mischief. He can mischief, mischief. Yeah. literally whenever God he pleases. Got a license James, to mischief? No. You summed this up for me even more succinctly, <laughs> off air, as, <laughs> as Thanos 
Now we know the Thanos yeah, this sends, is the Lo- other problem I sends have with the Loki film. back to Earth specifically to get the Tesseract, which is, of course, one of the six Infinity yes. Stones. Yeah. Loki gets it in the first three minutes of the film. Yes. Why doesn't the film just end there? Yeah. <laughs> Mission accomplished, job done. Like, he doesn't need to bring the Chitauri. He has the thing he's sent for. He's done. Well, no, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe, I mean, because Thanos uses the Chitauri. We see them in action. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't want to spoil any other films. Um, he uses them as part of his general purpose yeah. to have yeah. the population of planets. Yeah. So maybe he, just, maybe he just thinks like Earth's time has come for the halving of the population of the planet. Uh-huh. He nowhere near sends enough to do that. He hasn't yet. They're coming through the port. The yeah. well, there's, there's, there's one big ship. There's one big ship. With the, they're all it's coming. more of like a space station and thing. They're, and they're all coming off that space station. I'm at really slowly in single file, which is odd tactics. But uh, they're very big. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. The entire film seems. In, it seems almost as if they retconned the entire thing and didn't really realise that those were Infinity Stones when they wrote it. I have a few thoughts on Iron Man Two. Is it's the oh right time God. to? No, <laughs> no, it isn't. It is okay. definitely not. Okay. But I'm just saying, so, so it doesn't, the whole middle section in Loki's plan makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no reason for him to be imprisoned. He accomplishes nothing by being there. Hawkeye turning up to save him seems, again, like they're just burning runtime. Helen, cover your ears. It's <laughs> upsetting. And then the whole final act of Loki titting about and summoning the Jatari is entirely redundant to the film's purpose. It's not, That's how not how red- dare you, sir? How dare you? My feeling is that. He has been promised Earth as his prize in exchange for re- re- for retrieving the Tesseract. And that, I think, part of that invading force, as we've seen in another film, will be ultimately Thanos himself will come through the, the portal and, you know, go, oh, thanks very much for that blue thing, which he hasn't told Loki is an Infinity Stone. He just says mm-hmm. it's a Tesseract, by the way. And he hasn't told Loki that he's also stashed another one inside his stick. Precisely, but this is part of the speculate to accumulate thing. And uh, so I think that makes sense. And it also makes sense that he would then... Upon learning of Earth's Mightiest Heroes via a possessed Clint Barton, sure, Ed. he would uh, then decide to tear the Avengers apart from inside. And the only way to do that is to utilise the Hulk. Now, bear in mind that his plan to get captured happens before he is aware that his brother, Thor, the God of Thunder, is also on Earth. So at that point, who better to tear the Avengers apart from inside than a mad, chaotic uh, Hulk? So his plan does make a little bit of sense, but like the Joker in The Dark Knight Rises, or The Dark Knight, rather, or yeah. like, what's his face? Silver. Do- Dr. Evil. In, yeah, Dr. Evil. Anything but Dr. <laughs> Evil. And Silver in Skyfall. It's best not scrutinised in great <laughs> Too detail. Closely. Six years down the line yeah. on a podcast. Because The Dark Knight completely falls apart if you look at that. Yeah. Hey, speaking of, I watched The Winter Soldier again over the weekend because I needed a break. And this isn't even the question yet. <laughs> <laughs> and the number 17 appears in that as well. So if you, if you heard the spoiler special, I'm getting suspicious about the, the prevalence of the number 17 in certain Marvel movies. I just think they like the number 17. I mean, who doesn't? It's a great number. It is a good number. But it feels good to say. It's there. It makes me feel strong and powerful when I say it. So, yeah. So we, we've established that what you don't need... To, when you watch the whole of the MCU, just leave the Avengers out because it doesn't make any sense and it's pointless. No. That's it. Just cut it. How Drop it. You? Retconned. Gone. No, it's, it's the new Highlander no, 2. No, 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 no. Avengers is essential to the MCU because it sets up the best MCU film directly, which, is, of course, is Thor 2, The Dark World. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I've, I've turned around on it. I love it now. <laughs> love a bit of ether. Malakath. 
you rotter. Ah, uh, he's so accursed. Did you know that the, the word for the uh, Dark Elves was something like it was Svartelfen? Svartelfen. Svartelfen, mm. yeah. I know, that's great. They should have called him that. Svart is Svartelfen. Like a black, I think, isn't it? In, uh, yeah, they were the Dark Elves. And the, the, the Alfen were the, were the Light Elves mm. in Norse mythology. It all comes from the poetic Edda, mostly. Yeah. They come from the realm of Alfheim. It might come from Prose Edda. I actually don't know the difference. Anyway. Did you know that leap years are divisible by <laughs> form? Hey, we should take a question. Before. Did you know that Odin's grandfather was created by a giant cow that licked a rock until it turned into a person? Yes. <laughs> it's the world's first salt lick. It was amazing. Yes. It's also how you were created. <laughs> yes, in many ways. In it many would explain ways. much. This is all true. What's the question, Chris? Yeah, go on, hit us with it. The question comes from Twitter and it comes from Glenn Runnels. At Glenn Runnels, he says, listening to Helena Harris' dead on Arnie impression. Thank you so much. I, You're very kind. Do you want to give us another burst? No, I don't. Thank you. Come on, do it. Do it now. <laughs> Come on, Helen. Give us that impression. <laughs> I enjoyed John's, I enjoyed I John's impression. He, he busted out some Arnie, didn't he? That was, that was really good, wasn't it? It was good. <laughs> Where's the handle? Give it to me now. <laughs> Uh, I instantly wanted as a message notification tone. It got me thinking, what does the Empire podcast team have as ringtones and message alerts on their mobile? Uh, he's guessing here. Okay. Helen Hamilton. No. Chris Marvel Tune. <laughs> oh, please. I'm trying to find my, my phone. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't Helen have a Hamilton? Hey. Oh, that's very good. That is very good. And uh, he says, James, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> It would be something West Wing related, wouldn't it? Be a Bartlett speech every time yeah, your phone rings. You'd get a, yeah. I did used to have uh, when I first started Empire. When I got a new email, it used to be Bruce Campbell going groovy. <laughs> but I get about two hundred and fifty emails a day, and the person sitting next to me honestly offered to pay me real money if I'd make it stop. That would be too groovy. Yeah, it was. There was too much groove. Yeah, so that no longer happens. I used to have Wally saying his name as my as my Wally. message tone. Wally, yeah. and uh, and I loved it but I think it might have irritated other people. I had the oh. crank ringtone for a while, you know, oh. that slightly unwinding one, which yeah. was really fun. And I used to have R2-D2 being disgruntled as my text message tone and, again, was forced to change it because it annoyed people. You yeah. actually had the um, the 24 ringtone for a long yes, time, didn't you? Yes, I did. I did have the CTU ringtone. I've had Jack Bauer shouting, damn it. <laughs> which is amazing. But, didn't, um, was it, Chris, wasn't it you that used to have, as a text message sound, something that said, text message, text message? I, uh, yeah, because I discovered this is like... Way back in the day, I had a phone, like, discovered that you could make your own text message noises. And so I recorded myself going, text message, text message. And that lasted about a day until I got a text message on a train. And everyone just looked at me like I was a weirdo. And so I stopped like. that. Yeah. Like I was a weirdo. James yeah. McAvoy used to have the original Star Trek, the original series theme as his ringtone. That's strong. It rang when I was interviewing him and he looked quite embarrassed. That is strong. Uh, Cat Brown, formerly of this parish, at one point had the X-Men cartoon. Bam, 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 bam. That's good. Which was pretty excellent. It yeah, once good. got her money off in, in The Forbidden Planet when her really? phone rang that's, when she was at the check-in. solid. I have, uh, I have an app on my phone which I think now is discontinued. It no longer supports iOS, whatever we're on. And uh, you could take a whole, you could take any song in your iTunes library and convert it into a ringtone. And loads of TV theme tunes are perfect for ringtones because they're like 30 seconds long. So for, for a while I had the Phoenix Knights ringtone uh, theme tune as my ringtone. I had the Parks and Rec 
yeah. theme tune as my ringtone. I had the American version of The Office as my ringtone. Uh, so I had a number of, of things like that. And it, pretty much anything that's a great 30-second in-and-out blast, it's, it's fantastic. Well, I do... Um, I do have a very special uh, alarm sound for when I use my phone as an alarm clock. Oh, which me goes, too. Which goes like this. Put your little hands in <laughs> uh, which, yes, I cut specifically at that point. That is, that is <laughs> it impressive. Took an, it took a disproportionate amount of time. Uh, I also once had Chewbacca. Chewbacca as my text message alert going... I remember that. Yeah. This is my alarm sound, if I can make this play. Okay. <laughs> and you thought Chris would have the Marvel tune Well this is my ringtone Just to show that I'm not a cliche I really hope it's Justice League <laughs> This is my <laughs> Oh my god That of course is the Marvel Studios fanfare By Brian Tyler From <laughs> Thor The Dark World the greatest of all the MCU movies, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that was the um, that was the Marvel fanfare for for a while. And the current one by Michael Ch- Michael Chikino isn't available. Hmm. It's not available. I can't get. It's not on the Doctor Strange soundtrack. Really? It's, it actually only appeared on a couple of movies uh, so far. But he did it specifically, I think, for Strange, and I'm pretty sure it's on uh, Black Panther as well. But otherwise, it's not on Thor Ragnarok. It's not on uh, Guardians Two, and it's not on. Oh, actually, it is on Guardians too. Uh, so, but it's not available as a as a thirty second ringtone. I wish it to be made available now. I don't blame you. I don't know who you're telling that to. I'm telling none you. None of us have the power. I'm telling you, Helen. All right. Uh, what else do I have on here? I have uh, at my most beautiful, which is my ringtone when my when my wife calls, and I have the theme tune from Kids in the Hall which yeah. is one of the greatest TV theme tunes of all time. Anyway, we'll do another. You know what we should do? We should do a, a TV theme tunes podcast. Let's do it. Do we do that? Yeah. Uh, now or later? Now, for the next two hours. Okay. I'll start with uh, Dad's Army. I, bet, oh. I really genuinely bet you did. Um, I've got the, uh, the version of All Along the Watchtower from Battlestar Galactica. Oh, that yeah. was my ringtone for a while. When I need to really focus on work, I tend to go to Barry McCreary's yes. music from that yes, show. Yes, as do phenomenal. I. Because you've got that, that, there's that YouTube video, isn't it, of the, the BSG playlist that you sent there's, me. There's a, yeah, there's a playlist great. of like 80 of them. And, yeah. but, but some of them in particular, Pasacaglia yes. and Allegro, yes. are just super good to write really, to. Really, really good. Prelude to War as well. I can't write to anything with lyrics. No. I have to have instrumental stuff. We have a lot of argument in the office, don't we? Because some of us only like music without lyrics. Yeah. And Terry insists on music that yeah, has she lyrics. She can't stand music that doesn't know. have words, and you are a purveyor exclusively of banging uh, uh, tunes. Of funky, uh, voiceless beats. Yeah. So, generally, unless it's a 3,400 track jazz uh, playlist, oh, it comes off quite quickly. <laughs> that, I, honestly, that lasted a lot longer than I thought it would. That lasted about an hour. So we're 20 minutes in or so? And no. No? Longer? Uh, actually, no, maybe you're right. 20 minutes in. So there you go. If you want to have your question read out on the Amber Podcast, you can do so via a number of methods. As Glenn Runnels found to his cost, we are on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or chances are we won't see it. And hey, you should also Facebook us. Because we get lonely sometimes. It's just nice to know you guys are out there and that you care. We're Facebook. No, we're not. We're Empire Magazine. Uh, on Facebook and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com Okay, time now for this week's first guest He is a fine British actor who first made a splash on the small screen years and years ago in a TV show called Chancer He gave it up after one season but he wasn't lost to the world of film and TV Oh no, because he made soon after that the likes of Creepy A and then became to the attention of Hollywood made Children of Men 
uh, that BMW advert and all sorts of other stuff. And this week he could be seen. That's a really good BMW advert. Don't don't knock. Oh, I'm not, I'm don't not knock the BMW it. advert. I'm not sure that'd be among his best films, but yeah. No, but it's a good advert. Sure. Shoot him up. That's a good film. Yes, it he's is. in that. That's good. My mom and dad love that film. Really? Yeah, they really do. But that's an extraordinarily violent film with like <laughs> with nudity and stuff. Yeah, with a with a with a hardcore s- Paul Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> with a with a gun battle during a sex scene and during a birth, so indeed, yeah. uh, Nick, um, I've got a reputation on this podcast <laughs> as Empire's uh, impressionist in chief, but it actually it's Nick. It is Nick. Uh, so he's the Marcus my Paul Brody. Giamatti is uncannily good, and you do Paul Giamatti in Shoot 'Em Up, don't Either you? Either we suck or the sky is really good, and, and that do, is exactly what he sounds like. You do Paul <laughs> Giamatti in Shoot 'Em Up, uh, so anytime I you want to just, I should just go li- for it. Literally, just did it. That was it. Yes. I thought it was a harassed middle manager. What? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So do Paul Giamatti saying, where's the handle? Where's the handle? Oh, that's perfect. It's good. It's pretty pretty good. It's upsettingly (laughs) orgasmic about that. It just breathes very hard, and I think I capture that. I just, yeah. yeah. What a movie. That should have a sequel. Yeah. Unfortunately, it, it didn't do very well at the box office. Wow. Yeah. What a shame. But, uh, anyway, it's Clive Owen. Clive Owen is the star yeah. of all those things, and he's also in this week's uh, movie Anon, directed by Andrew Nichol. And uh, he came into the Clive Owen came into the pod booth week week or so ago. And here's the thing about Clive Owen. Don't know if you know this. He's a big Liverpool fan. I don't know whether you know this because it never comes up in the podcast. Never. I'm a big Liverpool fan, and this was just before Liverpool were about to play Roma in Rome. So. There's a fair amount of talk about that as well. But there's some other good stuff as well about Anon, Croupier, Children of Men, his career. And he's a very fun guy. Oh, a little bit of uh, news about Gemini Man as well. So here you go. Me talking to Sir Clive Owen. Enjoy. I would be delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of Anon, Clive Owen. How are you, sir? Yeah, very good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, although I believe you are off. We'll get the big one out of the way, first of all. I'm a, I'm a red like yourself, and you're off the match. I am. The Roma yeah, match. I'm very excited, yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you swing that? Um, luckily <laughs> I had some time off I actually think uh, I was supposed to be uh, doing the junket for this movie tomorrow but I got them to push it back a little bit that's the power that was kind of what happened <laughs> if the truth be told the power of clever one <laughs> amazing you excited? by the yeah, time people have heard excited, this yeah. they'll know the score but uh, yeah no I'm very excited uh, we will who, talk who, about who do you want in the final? You think we'll have Real Madrid in the final? I'd, honestly, I'd want Rotherham in the final. <laughs> I'd want someone I know we could beat. Uh, but I will. I think I'd prefer Bayern. I, I think we can beat either. I think we beat either, but I'm concerned about. There just seems to be something about Real in that competition. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, they haven't been true. great this season, and, yeah. but in the, in the Champions League, they've been very switched on. And yeah. Ronaldo against Dayan Lovren gives me nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, but at the same time, we have the greatest player on the planet at the moment. So yeah, that's you know, true. we shall see how it goes. Yeah. We shall see how it goes. Um, but one more quick thing about Liverpool: we had uh, David Morrissey in. Uh, the oh right, he's a, yeah, he's a red as well. Yeah. He's a big red as well, and uh, he revealed that he is the voice. I didn't know this, but he's the voice of the club tour. So if you go to Anfield, oh, and you go around, take and, the tour. Oh wow! Yeah, and it's I'm jealous. <laughs> I was going to say, was there like was, that, was there stiff competition for that? Did you know that that was going? Did you tell your no, agent I, I want that? Totally missed that one, but I've been making a few calls now. <laughs> but of course, you are you're one nil up in a way because you were the voice of the being Liverpool documentary. I was that, and I also I did something which um, I before the Athens final. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah. 
they, ITV came to me and I did the sort of lead in into the show and I'm patron of this very cool little cinema in Harwich. Okay. And they shot edited highlights of the Istanbul comeback with me sitting in this dark cinema going, Istanbul 2005. <laughs> but I'm basically saying, let's bring them back on again for more. <laughs> and it was like, I was like in dreamland. I was like, this is like, the you know. And I went to that final and then somebody called me and said, oh, Clive, come and look at the edit, you know. And I was with a, a very good mate of mine, Gary Mavis, who's, who's a scouser. And we go into this little room and we watch the thing and he turns to me and goes, best thing you've ever done <laughs> best thing you've ever done and he meant it you, know? <laughs> you really I really felt it yeah he was right. like that's the best thing you've ever done <laughs> there, were no, there were none of your tricks there were none, none of your acting BS you meant that I came from the heart oh man that's amazing but then what happened we, we lost that game oh, yeah well we don't yeah, you were at that game weren't you I think I, I interviewed yeah. you for a shoot em up and you told yeah. me you were at that game yeah. so yeah are you a jinx Clive should I be worried oh, about you being at the oh, game shit. tomorrow yeah don't say that don't say that alright fingers crossed I'm going to touch with whatever the hell this is yeah. and uh, this is the point in the podcast I, I swear to you this is a film podcast <laughs> but uh, I can't I just can't uh, I just can't stop myself whenever I get a fellow red in the podcast I yeah. get very excited oh, so, as well. uh, but I'll tell people on the podcast to skip ahead to spend, <laughs> 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 they can actually hear the film stuff uh, because um, Anon is a very interesting film it's a very relevant film it's a film that uh, oh is very much about the now, it's about privacy, and it's about the idea that, uh, you know, in the in the future, we won't, none of us will have any privacy. Not in the future, really. Yeah, I wonder what Mark Zuckerberg I mean, thinks of this film. Yeah, it was not in the future. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, when, when Andrew Nichol p- pitched the film to me, he, he said it's about the battle for privacy, which we've already lost. Yeah. And, you know, you say, oh, it's, you know, set in a world where there is no privacy. We're hurtling towards that already without much discussion about it, really. It's mm-hmm. kind of just happened and technology has taken over and suddenly we realise that, you know, we, we give our information everywhere. We're tracked everywhere. Our phones mm-hmm. are our GPSs. Every time we go online, every time we Google, every, that is information and data that is can be instantly connected to us. Yeah. And that's the kind of world that we live in without much debate about it, really. Yeah. What sort of digital footprint do you have? Uh, you're, you're not on Twitter, you're not on any of the social media, but that's something that you've, you've avoided. No. Yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I you know, was brought up in a pre-social media age and I never never really had the appetite for it. I never wanted to, and I, it doesn't appeal to me. I mean, I you know, I... The work that I do is just sort of, you know, I'm in a public game in terms of, you you know, you put films out and you want people to see them and it's very much, you're in the public eye, but outside of that, I do everything I can to keep quiet, you know, yeah. and, and and sort of, you know, I understand that that comes with the territory of what I do, but there's another part of me that outside of it likes to keep very quiet and keep my head down and the idea of, of, of constantly pushing myself or what I do every day, all day, it, it doesn't... <laughs> Is not attractive to me at all, you know. Having said that, if you if you were to sign up right now to Twitter or Instagram, just think of the fun you could have tomorrow. Just go out. Why? Just you know, just show people where you are in Rome, at the game. Why? Here I am. Why do they need to know where I am? <laughs> you know, they go, why, why do they let them watch the game without me annoying them about what I'm doing? I, I won't be able to focus on the game now. <laughs> I need to know where you are. I need to know you're safe, Clive, basically. I'll take your number and I'll text you every hour, all right? <laughs> oh, thank God, Clive checked in. Clive checked in, everybody. It's good. I can relax now. It's all good. Um, but that, that, does that... 
because obviously in, the, in your career you have made choices, you have made blockbusters, you have obviously taken leading roles in big movies. But you also have had a tendency, I think, to go for the character parts. You've gone for supporting roles. And even way back at the beginning of your career, you walked away from Chancer mm. uh, when that became a success. Now, was one of the reasons that you did that because of privacy, because it was you were getting almost uh, too famous? Um, no, no. But there's certainly, you know, I've seen sort of the level of fame where, you know, you cross a certain line and it, and it becomes, you know very very difficult i've worked with lots of you know huge actors and actresses who are you know international mega stars and i've seen what what that can be and and it's not you know i don't go and actively trying to avoid that i just sort of do my career but i'm not sort of i'm not i've never really chased fame in inverted brackets mm. i'm about the work you know i i I train in the theatre. I, I love what I do, and I love the challenge of what I do. But it's not about, you know, becoming as famous as I can be. It's about doing the best work I can do. Mm. Why did you become an actor? What, what was it that, that, that grabbed you? I did a school play when I was 13 and went, I think I want to do this. And that was it. And I joined a little youth theatre in my hometown in Coventry and did play after play and was set alight by it. And suddenly... I didn't want to do anything else. Did you find you had an aptitude for it right away? Did you find you had a talent for it right away? Were you the guy getting the lead roles in all those plays? Um, um, I never, I didn't really look at it like that. I just looked at it as something I wanted to do and was passionate. So I wasn't sure, you know. I, I must have got good feedback because it, you know, it, it, you know, I was inspired and I did, you know, get decent parts in these plays as a young kid. But it, 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 I, I, I fell in love and I was passionate, and it was quite. You know, moving actually, because a few years ago I tracked down this youth theatre and it's still going on in Coventry, the wow. Belgrade Youth Theatre. Yeah. And it's not like a sort of fancy drama school. It's for local kids, you yeah, know, yeah. who are sort of... And some of them might be in difficulty in school and home and everything, but it offers them this sort of outlet, creative outlet. Yeah. And some people like me are set alight and suddenly they find something that they're really into and it can be a very sort of galvanising thing. And it was... It was very touching to go back and say to those kids, look, I, I come from where you come from. This is exactly what happened to me. And this is how, you know, um, that it's possible. You know what I mean? If you fall in love and you're passionate and you care enough about it, 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 it you know, it can be a very hugely positive thing. Mm. So you started off in theatre. Were you, were you always looking towards film? Was that, or was that something no, that just happened? Not at all, no. It was theatre. Yeah. Like, I, you know, and to be honest with you, before I started doing plays, I didn't really go to the theatre. It was just I started to do them. I was like, oh, well, I'll join this youth theatre, started to go to plays, and then it was all about theatre. And uh, I was lucky. I, I auditioned for one drama school, the Royal Academy, and amazingly, I got in. <laughs> so who were your heroes at the time? Did you have anyone you wanted to emulate? Because this is the... David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> What went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my hero. There was no, I didn't really have an acting hero. I didn't look up and go, I want to be that film star or I want to be that theatre actor. Or No, I didn't do that. No. Oh, well. Did you, uh, did you try and emulate Bowie at any point? Um, you, is there a musical side to you that we don't know about? Not a musical side, but I, I did dye my hair a lot of colours. <laughs> I, was I in, read that about you, teens. yeah. Yeah, it's true, at school, yeah, I did do that. What was the uh, the strangest colour you dyed at Clive? There, 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 was, there was very often a number of colours at the same time, <laughs> to be, if the truth be told. 
I think my friend who was in the, who, who, who was in the, uh, a rada with me, well, I walked in and thought, how did that guy get in here? <laughs> <laughs> incredible, incredible. So in terms of your, your choices then as an actor going forward, I mean, in t- and you start doing film, what then affects your choices? So, I mean, you know, when you're presented with something like Anon or Children of Men, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the story? Is it the director? Well, and this one on Anon, I, I nearly worked with Andrew Nichol a long, long time ago, and I've always held him in really high regard. I think he's one of the most talented, interesting writer-directors that, that's working because every subject matter he tackles seems to be hugely relevant and yeah. he has, he has a, a very sort of strong take on it. And, you know, I, I find this film, you know, quite moving in terms of making you reflect on the world we live in and the whole thing about privacy and technology and the amount of data and, and sort of tracking that everybody's got now has happened without much discussion and we don't really... We just accept it and we move forward. But a film like this makes you stop and reflect on the reality of our situation, the fact that our phones are GPSs, the fact that, you know, Cambridge Analytica, that, you know, not only did they have your cell number, they had all your contacts numbers. And mm. it's, you know, the, 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 the world of privacy and, and, and the protection of that is, is rapidly vanishing and we're not even discussing it really. And at least with... Someone like Andrew Nichol, he'll tackle a serious subject like that in a cinematic way and, and, and make people reflect on it. I guess you're, you're filming uh, a movie I'm incredibly excited about right now, which is uh, Gemini Man. Are you, yeah. are, you, are you done? Are you still filming No, 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 I'm in the middle of it, yeah. So yeah. how have they given you time off to go to the room again? Because no, I, I just, I come and go. <laughs> I haven't got a, a huge part in it, so I've, I've been to, out to Savannah, Georgia a few times, and then um, I join again in Budapest in a couple of weeks. Okay, excellent. And this is a movie that's been around for years. Andrew Nichol wrote a draft. Back in really? the day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember reading this when I didn't work for Empire. Back in the oh, day, reading, right? a, wow. reading a piece about it going, wow. Harrison Ford is going to star in Gemini wow. Man. Wow. It has, yeah, it has been one of those that's been along and had a lot of writers. And, you know, I was talking to Andrew the other day and he actually, you know, wrote a, a draft of it years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, what, and can you, what can you say about Gemini Man? Because it's very much, again, it's about, I guess it's about cloning. Now, it, probably when it originated back in the mid-90s, it was more of a tall tale. But nowadays, I, can, I imagine it has I think some... it, it's going to have, um, you know, it, 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 it feels like it's going to be pretty groundbreaking in terms of the technology being used. Um, just the way it's being shot. And it, it's probably the reason that the films took so long to get made is... You, ha- you know, it's only now that the technology can really deliver what the film is discussing and what the film's about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it will be pretty wild when it's seen in terms of, yeah, what they'll do. It is about cloning and, and you know, Will Smith's character is cloned and it'll be pretty shocking, I think. Would you clone yourself in real life? <laughs> <laughs> What a disturbing thought. <laughs> See, here's the thing, Clive, right? You could clone yourself, lack Clive, I do could, the Instagram and the Twitter. I could be in Rome now, <laughs> eating, drinking, getting ready for the game, while this Clive works. Does and, the interview. Yeah. Come on. There you go. The football Clive and the film Clive. Going to see every match, <laughs> yeah. home and away, totally fine. The other Clive's got this handled. He's answering dance questions like, would you clone yourself in real life? Exactly. I'll take the football guy. I'll leave him to do the other. And then there you can, people go up and go, are you Clive Owen? And he can, he can truthfully go, no. And they just wander away. They wander away. But it's, uh, it's Ang Lee, and uh, yeah. I believe Ang Lee is pushing the technology in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, as well. very much so. He's um, yeah, he's using he's using technology that I think has never really 
really been used before, and uh, he's convinced it's the future of film. So, have you encountered Will Smith's massive double decker trailer? It's not double decker. <laughs> he used to have a double decker. It's not double decker. It's a it's a normal trailer, from what I've seen. You know, oh, yours is a double decker, is it? <laughs> it's not a double decker. No, he's he seems like he's been an absolute joy. I've done a, you know, a few scenes with him now, and he's an absolute joy to work with. He's a real pleasure. He's a, he's a really you know totally prepared, and really committed and easy to work with it's been a real pleasure and uh, you say you, you nearly worked with Andrew Nichol a few years ago yeah and we were a few times actually yeah I nearly did a movie with him a long long time ago and uh, for whatever reason that sort of didn't happen and then he sent me a few scripts over the years and always as I say hugely interesting topics and sort of his take you know I, I, and I've always been a fan and, and gone I'd love to work with Andrew Nichol because I just think he's He's an original voice, and you know, in the current climate of movie making, for me, he's, he's, you know, he's he's one of the few writer directors that is ta tackling subjects that, are, you know, we should be talking about. Mm, absolutely. So, so when you finally uh, bit the bullet and you finally worked with him, what was that first day like? Was it uh, what you were expecting? Was he falling over things and dropping stuff? <laughs> and you were going, oh god, no, no. he was great. I mean, we spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, but but both of us are sort of very keen on on you know pre preparation really. So we did a lot of talking and getting together before we even started the movie, and uh, and you know he would send me drafts and we would talk about it and he would you know show me the artwork and show me and I, I love that for me it's one of the most pleasurable things about making movies is that kind of collaboration and I just also think that for an actor to know what a director's intent is is hugely important in terms of, you know, I, I, I think it's a director's medium and I think an actor's job is to, is to you know, deliver the material as best you can and y you've got a much better chance of doing that if you're really in tune with the director and know what they're trying to achieve. Mm. It gives me a clear idea of what, you know, I, I can do within that and... Uh, so it was a really, really great collaboration in, mm. in terms of that. And uh, so we'd done a lot of work before we even got on the set, really. For an actor, you can do maybe three, four films a year. And that in itself will bring with it that strange experience of the first day, three, four times a year, which yeah. is for most people. I hate the first most, day. Yeah, I hate the first weekend, in fact, <laughs> usually, yeah. I like yeah. to be in and, you know, and to... I don't like the newness of it because I just want to be... And I always want to go back and do those first few days again. Mm. Always. I have a sort of gut instinct of like, oh, now like now, let me go back and do that because there's something about getting into a rhythm and understanding how people work and there's a lot, you know, of new things coming at you and, you know, that... Never sleep the night before a first day. Like I'm Really? No, 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 never because it's just the unknown. You just... I want to know where I'm at, you know, get into a rhythm, know the people that are around me and get on with the work as opposed to all of that calibrating and trying to, you know, find your your way of the newness of it all. I prefer to, to, to be in the thick of it. So, you know, the first few days I, I never really enjoy. Uh, especially if it involves something like an accent, is that, is that...? In everything, an accent or, <coughs> you know, the, the, you know whatever it is, there, it's, it's the newness of it. You haven't worked with the director often, you, you know, you don't know the crew, you don't know what's going to come at you, and, you know, and a, a week or two in, once you've got all that down, you're not thinking about any of that. All you're thinking about is what you should be, which is the work, and that's where I like to be as opposed to 
you know, thinking about other things. And on a related note, uh, it's 20 years, amazingly, since Croupier came out. Well, and I saw Mike Hodges last week. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah and oh, seen him he? for a while, and he's great. He's doing really great, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, is that a movie that ha- that holds fond memories for you? It, well, it changed my life. Yeah. changed my career. It was, uh, as Mike once said, that film didn't get released, it escaped. <laughs> <laughs> because it was destined not to do anything, and then... Uh, and I actually saw this guy, a guy called Mike Kaplan, who comes from marketing, really, and uh, he actually put out Kubrick's films and was very good friends with Altman. And and he was friends of Mike Hodges and he saw Croupier and he loved it. And it would look like it was destined to go straight on TV in the UK. Mm. And then Mike Kaplan championed it in America, had screenings for it and got Altman in to look at it. And, all the, and suddenly he created a bit of a buzz for it, got this very limited distribution, which got really great reviews. Mm-hmm. And then sustained a life in the cinema for probably a year in the days where you could do that. Yeah. And it was a tiny film and it was a modest success, but it was an impact. It was a sort of, you know, indie film of that year that really yeah. resonated. And it changed everything for me, you know. Suddenly, you know, Altman came to me and said they don't want to do Gosford Park. And, and suddenly everything started to shift and change. So this tiny film, which cost less than a million dollars... Yeah, I feel like it changed my career. So it was an almost immediate effect. You were getting those those phone calls. And you, you, that, yeah. that stratosphere that you were in was slightly well, different. Well, I'd, I'd gone out, to, to be honest with you, and I wasn't really chasing it. I was perfectly content doing what I was doing, but I'd gone out to LA like other actors and sort of gone with a little independent film and everybody meets you in case the film hits or something <laughs> and suddenly, you, you know, but just in case you'll meet the assistant of the assistant casting director for that studio or whatever. And then that film sort of started to make an impact in America and I went out there and I was meeting all the directors and suddenly people were talking and it just changed. The landscape changed and it, my career kind of opened up over there in terms of movies and I, I owe it to that film. And, you know, they say it's the ones that you, you least expect. It was a modest film that, for me, had a big impact. But am I right in thinking that you, you wanted to stay, even though you were taking those opportunities in the States, that you wanted to stay based here? Did you ever, did you ever move? Yeah. yeah, no. I, I like I like living in London. Yeah. I like it. And uh, I've worked a hell of a lot in in America and the difficult thing is straddling the two in terms of having to go there to work. But actually, you know, my family and everything being in London, but I love coming home to London. On Krupa, do you remember your first day? We're talking about uh, how first days make you nervous. Yes, I do. Yeah. I do because <clears throat> there was a lot of voiceover in Croupier. <clears throat> and we did some shooting on the first day of me just doing some blackjack croupying. And Mike was saying, we'll put this voiceover on afterwards. And it it really worried me. It bothered me. I was thinking of the film, and there was a lot of voiceover in that movie. And I went to see Mike at the end of the day, and I said, let's talk about this. Let's, you know." And I said, I feel that it's going to be a little vague, laying voiceover over a general croupying. And... It sounds crazy, but I think I should learn every voiceover. <laughs> I should speak it. Yeah. And then we do a take and I just think it. Now, it sounds crazy, uh-huh. but what that does is it makes the voiceover present. It makes it... Yeah. Tightens it, makes yeah. it present. So if I'm thinking, oh, he knew the scan, and he's looking at... And it's very specific. 
Mike doesn't have to use everything I do, you know. He's not going to just stay on me as I think my way through a long monologue. <laughs> but he has the options at times, and it's very incisive, and it gels the kind of voiceover with the thought, with what you're looking at. Yeah. And it made a big difference, I think, in terms of feeling like that voiceover was present, that it isn't just laid on and sort of a pondering after the event or a... And, and that's what we did. I learned wow. every voiceover. I spoke it in a weird rehearsal where I just go and speak the voiceover and then we do the take. And I just think it, but be very incisive about where I was looking and what I was thinking. That's amazing. So did you know the voiceovers before that first day or my, was it the first day that made you My think? audition for the movie was pretty much doing the voiceover and then doing some croupier. It was that. It, he, he needed to see that more than he needed to see acting in a way. He needed to see the voiceover being done and somebody working a roulette table, whatever, with that and put them together and just see what that vibe was. That was how he auditioned me, really. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, and do you still have the card skills? And was that something that kept you awake? I went to Krupa school for two weeks. <laughs> I did? Wow. And I didn't, I, I just wanted to learn a couple of things where you could connect my hands to my face. And the overriding memory is they were so paranoid about anyone thinking they could steal. <laughs> the idea was don't think you can ever get away with... Because, you know, it's one of the few places where there was a lot of cash around, you know. Mm. And there are great stories from, you know, croupiers tell you about people trying to siphon off, you know, scams of the way... You, you know, because people are dealing in ready cash. People are handing over big sums of yeah, money yeah, often yeah. and putting the 50 notes in the thing... And I just remember at Krupa School that that was drilled into everybody. Don't think you'll ever get away with stealing, because you won't. <laughs> Have you had uh, problems going to the casinos ever since? No, no. People go, that guy knows. He knows, <laughs> he knows all our tricks. He's counting cards. It's ridiculous. Um, we have a, a semi-regular slot on the podcast called the IMD Bunker. Now, the IMDB is a treasure trove of trivia about people. Most of it's bullshit. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I, I did an interview earlier when people were throwing quotes at me about, you know, and I swear, I it's crazy. And they keep coming back. Like, people keep asking me this, and I think, no, of course I wouldn't say that. Of course I wouldn't But this part that. of you think, hang on, did I say that? No, I Maybe. know. I know. Oh, you know, yeah. you know you, you've tracked everything. No, because. I just know that I would never say that. I don't know. So go on. All right. Okay. So here's number one. When you're when you're beyond borders, co-star Angelina Jolie told you that you looked sexy. You fell over laughing. That was probably true. Yeah. That's probably <laughs> what I would do. Yeah. I, 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 I put my hands up for about that one. Admitted in a Newsweek interview to promote the international that you have committed, considered not committed. You haven't committed any crimes. You've considered submitting false trivia about yourself to the IMDb. No. No, that's not true. <laughs> But somebody was. And let's not re-spark them so that they start doing it again. But there was a period where the craziest things were being... And people would say, have you got a phobia of badges? And I'd be like, what? And they're yep. going, that was written. That's the next one. That's the next one. <laughs> and here's the no, giveaway. No, I haven't. Is here's, the but here's the giveaway. In an interview published in the Daily Express... That's the giveaway. He said he was terrified of badgers. <laughs> that is, that is, 
not true. Well, here's the thing, Clive. You should be terrified. You should be terrified of badgers because they're vicious. I mean, I grew up in the countryside. I know what badgers can do to you. They're they're mean machines. Well, maybe I'll become. But at the moment, I'm not. Uh, you mentioned this already, but uh, we know this is true. But November 20, 2006, you became patron of the Electric Palace Cinema in Harwich, in England. Yes. Uh, you still patron of that, I of that still cinema? Am. Yeah, and what it's is a fantastic place. What is it about this? It's cinema? one of the oldest cinemas in the country. It's super cool. It's, um, it's run by a couple of great guys, and um, it's just it's great. And I often get most films that I do, I try and talk to the people involved and get them a a sort of early screening because it's a it's a charity it's cha- you know it's a charitable thing and I go there and do a and a and I love the place it's 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 a great old school cinema with the little mm. you know um front ticket booth and it's <laughs> yeah it's great single screen it and the, I mean they've now got a digital projector but when I first was patron the only way into the projection room was on a ladder on the outside <laughs> it's true it's it was true it was it's super cool. That's amazing. And when did you when did you first see the cinema? When was that something that you grew um, up with, or is that something that you? Uh... I actually no. I, I I bought a house in that area. Okay. I had been there before because my wife has got um, family have a sort of place that way, and I'd been to the cinema a couple of times. You know, when we were young. But then when I bought a place, they contacted me and said, "Would I consider doing it?" And I, I jumped at it. I love the place. Fantastic. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's. I think it's important to have cinemas like that still around. Yeah, I had a similar similar like at my hometown, and it is now a block of flats. So, <laughs> there you go. And then the last one. This is this is one of my favorite ones because uh, I want to know if this is true, and if so, what's happening with it? Developing a remake of popular seventies children's TV series Cat Weasel as a starring vehicle and as co-producer, and it says brackets December two thousand and nine. So that was nine years ago. Is that true? And if so, what's happening? That one, mm-hmm. the Badger. <laughs> And a couple of others are coming from the same source. <laughs> the Daily Express. No, they're coming from somebody <laughs> who I think I've worked with, who every now and again plants one of these. And I literally have to answer. But that one, the Badger one, total, total <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point of the IM debunker, Clive. You have, you have officially debunked these. Can we not do more? Because I can debunk I mean, more of those. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you were voted number five in L France magazine's 15, 15 sexiest men poll. Oh no, I believe that. That's one. true. No, I believe that's that one. <laughs> no, that that, that. <laughs> that sounds right. Not too sure about the placing, but I mean, no, that one. That one sounds true. Yeah. So. Who do you think's doing this? Do you know who's doing it? I have a suspicion. Yeah, can you I, name I'm, them? I'm frightened to talk about it because I don't want to reignite them. This is a. This is, we're going back to anon. This is a, a horrendous invasion of your privacy. <laughs> and someone close to you is doing this. Yes, this is shocking. So there's a movie, isn't there? There is a movie here. <laughs> I'm not sure it would be a terribly good movie. But there's, there's a movie there, and we can do the premiere at the Electric Palace Cinema. So. It's should, should we go and pitch it somewhere? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, there's all sorts of film studios just around the corner. We'll, we'll do that now. Can we Brilliant. stretch it to ten episodes? 
<laughs> Episodes, Clive. I don't think you understand what a movie is. <laughs> we need to have a chat about it. We'll get, we'll get our story straight. We'll go and pitch it. No, I've jumped to the spin-off already. <laughs> Next time you're back in the Emperor Podcast, we'll be able to promote this movie about an actor who has to fend off bullshit stories planned by a co-star. But they won't let you do it because you're actually producer of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. This is live workshopping. I, I like it. Uh, in which case, I will ask the last question that has probably been planted by someone uh, very close to you, someone that you've worked with in the past. I'm trying to think who that is. Jude Law, isn't it? No. It's not Jude. It's not Jude. Wait, I hope it's not Jude. Yeah, Jude Law. Damn that guy. Uh, the last question it is uh, apparently you said, and we know this is not true because this is an interview you've already debunked, it's not happening. You apparently said you don't eat biscuits because, and I quote, he men don't need biscuits. Now, look at me, okay? Just look at me. <laughs> no, no, no. Just look me in the eyes and tell me, right. do you really believe that I might have said that at some I point? I can't look you in the eye. <laughs> Your stare's too do intimidating. Do you think that I would have said that at any point in my life? When I read the interview, when I read that quote, I thought, he doesn't strike me as the he-man, don't-need-biscuits kind of guy. But it could depend on the type of biscuit. So, right, put them together. The he-man biscuits, the badger. <laughs> right. the, there's another one that I don't do emotion. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just flat-out refuse. <laughs> Sorry, but no. Put them together. That's there's why you a, don't sleep before the first night in case they ask you to do there's emotion. There's a pattern emerging, no? <laughs> Um, it's not me, is what well, I'll say. It's, this has been the most successful, uh, probably the most successful podcast interview I've ever done. Uh, certainly the most successful IMD bunker. I've never got a three-picture deal out of one of these things before. <laughs> so this is, this is incredible. Clive, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much indeed. Cheers. And uh, best of luck the Reds. Thanks. For the interview, for the result that people will already know by the time they hear this. Okay. Okay, brilliant. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that was Clive Owen. Now it is time to talk about this week's movie news. What has been happening? Uh, well, the most recent thing to have happened at time of recording is the first proper trailer for uh, Shane Black's The Predator has dropped. Has it? Yes, it has. Mm. Uh, as indeed have the first proper pictures of The Predator. Oh. Uh, the spoiler. first which we have it exclusively like put on the Empire website. Yes, yeah, spoiler, it looks exactly the same as all the other Predators. <laughs> no, it's... Um, I mean, yes, it does, actually. That's, that's entirely accurate. But it's in a different room. It's in a, it is in a different room. Also, it's, it's looking a little bit Magic Mike. Like, it's, oh, uh, it's entirely topless. The Predator XXL. It's, it's oiled, <laughs> and it's wearing sort of fishnets. It's... Uh, I, no, it genuinely is. Uh, and, some, and some kind of posing trunk thing. What? Uh, no, it is. It's, I mean, it's literally a half-naked predator. Um, it they've taken it in an unexpected direction. Yes. No, it's, there is a reason why it's, it's half-dressed. Uh, I know this because I was on set and I remember that set, but I can't say why. Okay. Uh, it's sexy scene. No, it's not. Um, so the, the, first, the first trailer's out there. This, this is a film that we, is long overdue. It was supposed to be out at the beginning of this year, wasn't it? And it has been pushed back and back and back. Uh, Rumours of, of some reshoots. But I'm, I'm very excited to see it. I was, if I'm honest, not hugely impressed with the trailer as it feels a touch generic to me um you know it's explodey things it's predators it's you know it, i don't think it the shame blackness of this film does not come across in that and i think that's a real shame it doesn't shock me because i suspect fox have no idea how to market this and they don't know what to do with it because mm. uh, it's they're like is it an action film is it a comedy no it's a shame black movie just roll with it so we'll see so definitely don't count this film out i think it's gonna be great because shame black only does good stuff 
But, you know, watch the trailer, see a predator, watch it not be different to other predators. What's your favourite shot in the trailer? Oh, the bit of the predator. It's great. Yeah, the bit with the oiled up. The bit with the oiled up (laughs) predator, yes, when he's bench pressing. In his pants. Good lord. This is a, a, an, a, an exciting new direction. Yeah. Hey, speaking of franchises born in the 80s um, that have remained dormant for a little while. I know what you're going to say. I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Bill and Ted will face the music in Bill and yes. Ted yes. Part the Third. Yeah. Um, oh. So the original writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, are back. They've written the new script. And of course, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter are back as as Bill S. Preston and Ted, Ted Theodore, Theodore Logan, Logan. Um, uh, who are still struggling to fulfil their destiny and write the greatest song of all time, the one that will bring balance to the force, utopia to the human race, and, you know, give rock and roll to us or mm. something. The greatest um, song uh, ever written has already been written. Is that true? By Tenacious Day. No, that wasn't the greatest song. That ever. was a tribute. That was a tribute was to a the tribute. greatest. <laughs> uh, Didn't actually sound anything like this song. No, I could not be more excited about this. This, this, this for is me is so bigger good. than Star Wars coming back. Yeah. Um, I cannot wait for this. And they've been talking about it. It's not a huge uh, like shock announcement because no, no. they've been they've been talking uh, about this coming back for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But it always felt like it might happen. It might not. So, and it always felt like they were waiting for to be sure that they had something pretty good mm. you know so we've got to hope that they do in fact have that i just hope that station are not involved because i do love bogus journey uh, i really love excellent adventure uh, most people prefer the second one i prefer the first one but um i do not like station so please don't bring station back station um they're <laughs> frankly irritating and grotesque the man um, who can make one word mean anything yes he's the groot of the btcu yes yes um, I do want William Sadler's yes. death, the Grim Reaper, to come I've, back. Absolutely, yes. You and may be a king or a little street sweeper. We're going to have... Sooner or later, you dance, dance with the Reaper. dance with the Reaper. Um, yes, apparently they're also going to be travelling, time travelling with their daughters. So, casting open now for... Even now they're practising their air guitaring. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's very hard to really care that this film is happening. That's because you're the <laughs> enemy of comedy. I mean, yes, but I don't. I don't lie. I prefer Bogus Journey to Excellent Adventure. Excellent Adventure leaves me quite cold. But these these have been away a very oh. long time, and for a lot of people, the only sort of encounter they've had with this franchise is Universal Studios resurrect them for this pantomime thing they do on Halloween every year, where Bill and Ted do a kind of lampooning of the year's popular culture, and it's quite cringy and incredibly sexist. And they've been doing it every year since pretty much the early nineties. And for a lot of the people there, that's all Bill and Ted is. Like, it doesn't exist beyond that. So I'm curious as to, to, to what the audience is for this beyond you two. Small but, but dedicated. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think they're going to spend a lot of money on it. I don't think that it's, this is going to be a hugely expensive product. Um, but um, I hope it's not too, too cheap either. But I, yeah, I cannot wait. I absolutely cannot wait. I saw uh, both of them back to back at the Prince Charles a few years ago, They're and it so was good. one of the greatest nights. Will it, those uh, films really hold up. Will it totally yeah. hock a loogie on that good dead me? <laughs> <laughs> Are you, in fact, evil James? You've left oh the good God, James in the that desert. That would explain a lot. You totally drove him to the desert yeah, and left him. He's That's the evil, evil robot usses. Yeah. Yeah. I love the fact that James goes, I don't, like, I don't like these films very much, and then proceeds to quote the second one <laughs> endlessly. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that was a fairly obscure quote you just dished out yeah, there. Yeah, I've seen it a few times. Speaking of things that originated from the 80s, Rambo 5 is a thing that's happening. Who saw that coming? Yeah. Who saw that? Who saw, who saw that coming? I mean, yes. It, it's I been think. announced about a dozen times over the last <laughs> dozen yeah. years. 
It's, it takes place on a ranch. Uh, I, where I where firmly, he has PTSD. I firmly believe Sylvester Stallone will still be making Rambo and Rocky films in 20 years' time. Mm. Like, he will, he will keep making them. There is no stopping them. There is none. Um, the last uh, Rambo was not good. He did punch a guy's head clean off his shoulder. <laughs> it was very violent. I mean, he was holding know. a knife. Yeah. I enjoy- Helen! <laughs> I enjoyed the ultraviolence, and I enjoyed the fact one of the dwarves from The Hobbit was there. Um, but um, it wasn't otherwise good, I, I, in the traditional I, sense. I, I think you're being very hard. Harsh on Rambo. I like the one where they play hockey with a dead goat. That's the uh, second one. Isn't it? I watched I watched First Blood again recently, and it is a really great film. Yeah. And I think if they got back to some to something like that, then you could. I'm a big fan of the second one. I know <laughs> the second one for me is the Rambo high point. I love it. Honestly, though, I believe I, I will believe this when. I am sitting in a cinema watching the horror <laughs> that is Rambo Five unfold. Maybe it won't be. Though. Maybe, maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll be fine. It'll all it'll all be good. But hey, speaking of things that originated in the eighties, because that's apparently all we're doing. Uh, Sherlock Holmes Three is finally happening. <laughs> yes, it is. The eighteen eighties. The eighteen eighties, Helen. And this is the gnome. This is the gnome free version. Yeah. No, this is the, this is your favorite version of Sherlock Holmes. This is the Robert Downey Jr. Jude Law version. Uh, yeah. Is finally. Because I know you love that version. Uh, it's, mm. it's finally hitting the big screen for a third helping. And, uh, of course, we all know that Sherlock Holmes first was printed in 1887 in um, A Study in Scarlet. Not a big fan of, this, of that series, but I do think Jared Harris was an amazing Moriarty. And I wish I could drop him into the BBC Sherlock and replace that Moriarty, and then you'd have really good... Did you miss me, Sherlock? Did you miss me? Did you miss me? Did you miss um, me? Did you miss me? I'm not a fan I know, of the No, I didn't Jr. miss Sherlock. you. You were awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they could maybe do with getting their London geography a bit better this time. I don't know. Yeah, it was it was bad in the last that one. That doesn't bother me. Well, okay. It's well. fine. It's, 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 it also was Victorian geography, which was totally different. Yeah. But do you, do, do, yeah, do you no. genuinely love those films? Do you revisit them? Do you, uh, are you curious uh, about When they're on TV, I'll, I'll watch them. They're, they're good films. I, I would, I, I, as much as I enjoy the... I, I do enjoy the, uh, the the BBC one. I enjoy this one equally, if not more. Mm. Speaking of things that started in the 80s, yeah. the Hitman's Bodyguard is getting the <laughs> sequel nobody asked for. How did that start in the 80s? It didn't, but uh, I wanted the theme. Better movies were made in the <laughs> oh, 1980s yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. the Hitman's Bodyguard yes. then I, ripped off badly. I, I might have uh, texted you all during the week when I watched the Hitman's Bodyguard for yes, the first time. And, and, uh, and thought it was five stars, which was unexpected, Helen. Yeah. I was a bit baffled. It just didn't seem like the best fit of those guys, those chemistry. Almost like a straight-to-video film that somehow landed two big names. I'd rather see um, Samuel L. Jackson on Instagram this week posted a photo of him with Joe Pesci out of nowhere. I don't know why they were together, but I would watch that double act. them just hanging. I would would absolutely watch any film that was the two of those. I mean, this is actually called The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard or something, right? So presumably it's about about the Salma Hayek character. Yes. Who was good, actually. I mean, to the extent that anything in that film was good, I I, (laughs) I thought that was an interesting idea, having her be at least as dangerous as her husband. I thought um, okay. everyone in that movie, and they're all charming, lovely people, but I didn't particularly yeah, like I that know. film very much. Um, but this would appear then not to have Ryan Rodney Reynolds in the in the movie. This is focusing on, on Sam Jackson and Sam I can't imagine what else he's busy with, but um, yeah. Speaking of things that originated in the 1980s, uh, <laughs> Tenacious D have uh, potentially announced a follow-up to the t- the pick of destiny which yeah. for my money is the greatest tenacious d movie to date um I, I, this is something jack black apparently announced at a concert so i'm not entirely sure how much credence or clear water or revival we should give Wait. to it but 
I don't know. I'm, I, I'd be fairly, I'd be fairly okay with a with a tenacious D movie. I, I love the D, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I'm excited to see those guys back again. I, I could, you know, it's not a very good film, but I, for some reason, I quite enjoy watching yeah, it. Yeah, there's. There's sort of affection for them, isn't there? There I is, think. there is. Talking of things that originated in the <laughs> 1980s, uh, Terry Gilliam's uh, Don Quixote movie, which he's been trying to make since at least the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more twists in that saga. No. Um, some good, some less good. Okay. There was talk of Amazon dropping out of distributing it in the States. Okay. Which would be bad. I think that's an ongoing situation as far as I know. Um, and then there was some controversy over whether it was going to play in Cannes. Mm-hmm. And it's just been announced that it will close the Cannes Film it Festival. It will. It is yeah. cleared to play Cannes. It is cleared to play, which is good news. And less good news, there are reports of Terry Gilliam's health not being so good at mm. the moment. And so we're hoping that he is OK. Yes, indeed. We hope that uh, Mr Gilliam gets well soon and we hope that the film turns out well. And speaking of things that originated in the 1980s, Eric Idle is writing a Spamalot movie, which is, of course, a movie of a musical of a movie. So um, I don't know quite how this is working. Uh, that one I am going to query. How does that originate in the 1980s? It doesn't. I just, you know. <laughs> you've got to keep, you've got to roll you with the same You just blindly Chris. walked into, okay, yeah. okay. All right. Well, I oh, mean, on. Eric Idle worked in the 1980s. Yeah, he, he so. was alive in the 1980s, yeah. you know. <laughs> Hang on, it's based on yeah. a song from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. When did the Grail come out? Which what came year was out in, in? Late 70s. Was it late 70s? Yeah. Which is another way of saying that. <laughs> it was is, is the early 80s. the 80s. Yeah, very early 80s. <laughs> the, the very, very the early 70s. The 70s are technically the, the very early 80s. 80s. Yeah. This obviously, there's lots of precedent for this though, isn't there? The producers, for one. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's been done, Hairspray. Yeah. It's been done multiple times. Does it need to be done here? Um, I think Spamalot is a really fun musical, so okay. I'm kind of down with it, actually. I'm all for films Just to hear with Finland. the word spam in the title. Finland, Finland, Finland. It's we, the country the for place me. where I Did want to be. Did you watch it as an Empire outing? No. 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 I've never seen no. it. You've never seen it? Neither no. have I. I have seen it, but it wasn't with you. Oh, okay. So by this Empire outing, you mean you. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. I, you went on an Empire look, outing without any of us. Me and you be... went to see Billy, Billy Elliot. We went to see Billy Elliot. I wonder if that was with young Tom Holland. I don't think it was. Not that one. The other one. Oh, okay. The historian. But, uh, yeah, but not to be too egotistic about this, guys, but uh, oh, God. I am Empire. So oh, if God. I go anywhere, it's an Empire outing. <laughs> so stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Talking of things that, that originated in the 1980s, oh Iron God. Man. Um, oh, the Iron Man costume has been stolen, and I am looking at you, Chris, because... Because um, I'm wearing it right now. Because right you do seem to be wearing a $200,000 Iron Man suit, which, which I haven't seen you wear before. Which Mark was this? And I'm not referring it to was, the perpetrator. Uh, it was Mark III, I think. It was from really? the first film. Yeah. The Mark III has been stolen. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know that I was in LA recently, but well, you know, um, a warehouse in Pacoima, California. I have, I have no comment on that whatsoever. Mm. I only want the nanotech one. <laughs> yes, you just turn down all other Iron yeah. Man suits. Yes, yeah. I have to have the nanotech one. Speaking of things that did not originate in the 1980s, we can finally put that one to bed. Uh, Jordan Peele has yes. finally announced his follow-up to Get Out. He has. Uh, what's it called? It's called Us. Mm-hmm. Not US. Because well, I thought it was US to start with. Yeah, no, I think it's us, but I think the, the echo is not uh, oh. un, uh, oh. incidental. Um, and he is apparently 
um, got a, a line. I mean, he has his pick, presumably, of, of Hollywood, one would hope. Um, but apparently, Lupita Nyongo, Winston Duke, and Elizabeth Moss are lined up for, currently to star there. I don't believe they've signed yet, but it's looking good. Apparently, the story, whatever it is, will focus on two couples uh, one black, one white. Uh, so, presumably, Nyongo and Duke would be one such couple and somebody else will be in there with Elizabeth Moss for the other. We don't know that for sure yet. It's described as a new nightmare so it's, we're expecting another horror movie possibly invo- uh, involving Freddy Krueger, who knows. Um, we, we do know it's not going to involve Freddy Krueger I think. Um, but yeah, it will be another appeal written and directed film aiming for a March release which is extremely exciting. And there's a teaser poster as well which yes. you can see which has two uh, figures in silhouette uh, one is black and the other one has uh, white what looks like it could either be bandages on the face or it could be I don't know some symbolism going on there I don't know look I bring facts about leap years I'm not here to talk about <laughs> symbolism on posters it might but, be about uh, leap years it might be a terrifying it, it could be the most terrifying movie about leap years since leap year <laughs> oh god can we not talk about leap year that was a terrible film let's not talk about leap year but, uh, but there you is go is so, leap year divisible by four stars that's the question uh, that one was not, no, because you can't divide one star, which you should have got. <laughs> oh. Helen, That's right, I said it. Helen dropping the truth bombs on Leap Year, <laughs> leap year there. A very sad news to round off the movie news section this week is that the legendary Oscar-winning editor of Lawrence of Arabia, Out of Sight, to name but two, Anne Fee Coates passed away this week, aged 92, and uh, was absolutely one of the greatest editors of all time. She really was. I mean, from Lawrence of Arabia, which is the film that made her name, out of sight with that incredible love scene, one of the great love scenes. Um, Erin Brockovich, mm-hmm. she did a brilliant job. Um, I mean, she just did kind of in the line of fire, Chaplin. She just had such a good uh, career. Elephant, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Absolutely phenomenal work in Elephant someone, Man. Someone said on Twitter the other day, and this made, this made me think, mm. that uh, obviously it's been tough historically for women to break into the film industry in in technical departments and technical roles. But I can think off the top of my head, three of the greatest film editors of all time are women. So you have Anne Fee Coates, you have uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, Mm -hmm. and you have Sally Menke Menke 4, 4 right away, Uh, and Ferner Fields, of course, who edited Jaws. So what is it about editing that was easier for women to break into? I can tell you this. Historically, editing was, in the very, very early days of Hollywood, editing was more of a female thing because it was seen as being akin to sewing. Not kidding. What? Genuinely not kidding. And uh, as filmmaking became more lucrative generally, what happened, what always happens, um, is that uh, men began to take it over. Um, So basically any, any... female-dominated profession that's, that switches and becomes male-dominated, uh, salaries go up and, and vice versa. Like, teaching is to be male-dominated. When it became female-dominated, uh, salaries went down. Um, and so that's essentially what happened with editing, that the men took over and essentially pushed the women out. But because of that history, there was a little bit of a... There was always a few female editors, so there was some kind of career path that people could try and emulate there. That's very interesting. Um, but, I mean, Annie B. Coates, Annie B. Coates apparently got her start because her boss was a bit lazy and would uh, essentially go off and go, just, I mean, just sort it out. And she would, and she did a better job than, than he was really doing, and, and this became noticed, and, and she was able to, to build up from there. Um, but she, she was also known as an actor's editor, apparently. She would kind of get out of the way of the performance and choose the best take and just make it work. I think she's responsible for the, the most famous and greatest... One of the greatest cuts, at least, in, in film history, which is the Lawrence Arabia, Arabia literal match cut, where it cuts from the, the match in his hand to the desert, 
and that's an amazing you know it's that mm. in 2001 space odyssey the bone to spaceship yeah. thing but it's absolutely amazing amazing indeed and v Goats, who died this week aged 92 as you know, this week's podcast is sponsored once again by Sky Cinema, which gives you unlimited access to the best movies at home whenever and wherever you want in the best possible way. I have been... It is true. There are rumours about me out there. People are asking, have I been a Sky Cinema subscriber for many years now? And Helen, I got a front up to this. I have been. What? I have been. You know what? Because I, I, I just love... I goddamn love the choice they offer. I, I love it. I love it. I love the choice they offer. They have over a thousand quality movies on demand, ready for me to enjoy whenever I want. For example, I'm going up to Liverpool this week, uh, this weekend to watch the, the Brighton game. Uh, it's a five-hour coach journey. I will have one or two movies from Sky Cinema just loaded on my iPad, ready to go. Amazing. It is amazing. Uh, and so this week, my recommendations are both from the premiere section of Sky Cinema. First of all, there is Denzel Washington's Fences, which is his latest directorial effort. Uh, it hit big at the Oscars last year, picking up the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Viola Davis. It's a movie set in 1950s Pittsburgh and stars Denzel Washington as Troy Maxson, who is trying to make his way as a sanitation worker. Uh, he's a flawed character, very, very flawed father figure. Uh, he butts heads frequently with his wife, Rose, played by Viola Davis. It features incredible performances throughout. As you might expect, uh, that Oscar was well and truly deserved by Viola Davis. It is a very powerful, very, very long film. It's a long sit based on August Wilson's fantastic very, very famous play, uh, but it is absolutely well worth your time. So that is Fences. And as a complete contrast, my second recommendation this week is a little film called Wonder Woman. Never heard of it, mate. Never heard of it. Uh, but that is a fantastic movie, the best movie by far in the DC Extended Universe to date. It stars Gal Gadot, obviously, as Diana Prince, who leaves her island paradise of Themyscira to uh, go and fight in World War I alongside Chris Pine as uh, Steve Trevor. Uh, and it is a, a wonderful coming-of-age hero story. Uh, it's a, a wonderful story about a, a woman making her way in a man's world. And it's got some kick-ass action as well. Absolutely fantastic. Well, so there you go. Wonder Woman and Fences, my two recommendations this week. And join me next week for more recommendations from Sky Cinema. OK, time now for our second and final guest this week. Another great British character actor uh, you'll have seen him in all sorts of things he was in Paddy Considine's Tyrannosaur Mike Lee's Happy Go Lucky he was in Edgar Wright's The World's End he can be seen in a recurring role on Ray Donovan and he'll soon be seen on the big screen in two roles in two different films first of all as Shimon Perez in Entebbe and then as a mysterious villain who oh, oh, maybe I've said too much a mysterious man whose name I cannot reveal in Deadpool 2 which is out on Tuesday, and we'll be reviewing that in next week's show. He is, of course, the brilliant Eddie Marsan. He came out to the pod booth again to speak to me. Uh, sorry about that. Next time we didn't speak about football, we spoke about all sorts of things. Uh, very fun interview, very interesting guy. Here you go, Eddie Marsan. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Ember podcast by Eddie Marsan. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Nice to be here. Oh, thank, nice to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I follow you on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> oh, do you? Oh, which I'm is in now. which is a roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, I, I love you on Twitter. You're fantastic. Uh, have you battled any bell ends today? What's what's your Twitter Twitter day been like so far? Um, it's been all right. I mean, I get the few the odd ones who come at me. I, I get the odd extreme right wing and extreme extreme left wing come at me for different reasons. <laughs> I, I love I, I love Twitter. I love being a moderate who who fights back. 
Yes. Because extreme, extremists hate moderates who fight back. Yes, they do. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm a bit like... Uh, I suppose I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit like uh, a Liberal Democrat with a machine gun. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, I, I like, I like, I, because I always think the centre ground is a braver place to be than to retreat into a dog- dogmatism. Yes. And, yeah, I've seen so many people over the years, so many uh, actors and celebrities retreat from Twitter because of things like that, because you don't want to get involved every single day. Uh, it can wear you down after a while. But I, I've been really, I've, I've been, I've admired how dogged you have been on Twitter, that you will stand your ground and say, yeah. this is, I'm not, I'm not going to retreat from yeah, this. Yeah, but, but I think also one, one of the reasons is, I tra- one of the reasons I got into Twitter, and it was Paddy who actually got me into Twitter. Mm-hmm. Paddy got me into Twitter when we were doing The World's End. It was Paddy Considine, and, yeah. And, and I was going on to do Ray Donovan. And because I travel a lot, I fly home every weekend from America to be with the family. And so I commute, basically. I spend a third of my life in an airport. <laughs> and you get people staring at you all the time. And it's much easier, if you're not reading a good book, and I read a lot as well, is yeah. to put your head in and have a debate with people. Yeah. And quite often I debate with people who have completely different views from me. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy that. And I enjoy talking to people who I don't agree with, but who share with me their reason. And I find that fascinating and enlightening. Yeah. And then you have the odd Barney with people as well. <laughs> and and about, it's about 10% of them. 10% just w- will not see any any reason anybody else's point of view. Mm-hmm. And and I and I'm I refuse to be bullied by them. Really. Absolutely. Uh but you are you're currently I I think you're probably amongst the busiest actors in um, on both sides of Hollywood, both sides of the pond. Is it is that a choice? Do you like to stay busy? I do like to stay busy. Um I I think it's also the nature of my the way the career has gone. Uh, I've um I realised very early on that I wasn't going to be um, a Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise, that people weren't going to employ me to be me. Mm-hmm. They were going to employ me to be other people. Okay. I mean, if you employ Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt, you better put Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt on screen. <laughs> With True. me, they'll ask me to be Himmler or, or Shimon Perez or yes. Bob Dylan or whoever I'm, I'm playing. So that's just part of the way my career's gone, you know? So... Diversity means I can, people don't have a fixed idea of me and then it means I can guarantee working. One of my favourite things about you, about 20 years ago, Empire did a feature where they spoke they to did, a lot of, yeah. a number of out-of-work actors. Yeah, they did, yeah. And I, and I, I gave, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because there was a girl called Hannah who worked in your offices. Yeah. From Bristol, I went to drama school with and She asked me to... Uh, Is that how it happened? Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Because we were going through this, this feature one day, we were going archiving old... Magazines, and we we're like, oh, look at this! It's an interesting feature. It was tied in, I think, with with Nell and I. And the idea was that we spoke to out of work actors at the time yeah. about their routine and how realistic with Nell and I's depiction of the out of work actor's life was. And you know, I think it's fair to say that most of the names in there haven't necessarily become household names since. Right, yeah. Then there's one person here, Eddie Marsan, age twenty seven, uh, uh, Garrett, flat in Bethnal Green, East London. <laughs> And then we asked everyone the same questions. Uh, and you know what? I thought to myself, I'm going to ask you the same questions and see how life has changed for you in the last in the last 20 years. But what are your memories of that? Of that? I remember, you know, I remember dealing with, I was dealing with a lot of rejection. Yeah. I was an unemployed actor. I've been, I, I left school at drama school at 21 and I was still unemployed then. I don't think I was quite making a living as an actor uh-huh. even then. And uh, it got me into, uh, funny enough, it got me into a lot of meditation. 
Okay. And a lot of Buddhism helped me through that, okay. through that period. And there's something that I remember saying in that article that I always said to myself was that work on the causal effect of things. Work on, work on yourself, not on... If you go into an audition, you can't guarantee if you're going to get the job because there's many reasons why they give people jobs. Mm -hmm. Many reasons, political reasons, financial reasons. All you can guarantee is every time you go into an audition, you can be excellent. Mm -hmm. be, be good at the acting. Mm -hmm. That's all you can do. Mm -hmm. And then leave excellence at every door all over London and eventually you'll get a job and it'll, and it'll work like that. And that's what happened for me. I'm, I kept working on the acting. I was talking to you earlier about Paddy. Paddy's a natural artist. I was never a natural artist. It was something that I had to learn to do. So I kept working at it and then eventually I started to get jobs. And then it kind of happened in my 30s. I began to work on a regular basis and I, and I haven't stopped. But the blessing with that, that was a blessing in disguise, was that I learned to act in anonymity. So I made a lot of mistakes, but nobody was watching. <laughs> so by the time people employed me, they thought, mm. oh, he knows what he's doing. Well, <laughs> five years earlier, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So, and I actually had this conversation with a lot of young actors recently on a film set, and they talked about that. They were all talking about the difficulty of dealing with rejection and, and trying to get a job and getting a foothold in the door. And I talked about that, and I said, you know, that... You can't con only work on what you can control. So, what would you want to ask me that? I well, I'll, I'll go on in a second. But you've you raised a number of really interesting points here because I have friends who are really good actors, but they're out of work actors, mm. and and uh, and they have found it a struggle as well. And some of them have families, and some yeah. of them have got kids, and yeah. they have to take uh, jobs. And mm. I guess they will initially look at those that this is just a job that I'm doing, and in in the meantime, to tide me over until something comes through in the acting business, and then sometimes that becomes the job, and the acting can recede into the background sometimes permanently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was there ever a point for you like that? Was there a point where were you taking... You say you were working on the acting at the same time as you were yeah. honing I'll, your craft, but how were you... I was going three nights a week to this... There was a Russian guy called Sam Kogan mm -hmm. who, who, who trained with the Moscow Arts Theatre in, in Russia, and, and he was very Stanislavski based. Mm -hmm. So I trained with him for three nights a week. And then one of his one of his um, students started a course called the Psychology of Action, where they mixed meditation and acting together, mm -hmm. which helped me. Mm -hmm. And I think I was in the middle of all that when you, when they when Empire interviewed me twenty years ago. Wow! Okay. And that helped me yeah. philosophically to get through it all. I worked for a man, a bookmaker in the East End, selling clothes for him. Actually, he ran a clothes store, and I used to manage the clothes store for him. But he'd let me go and do a job whenever I needed to. That was a big help. Um, I nearly there was a couple of times where I nearly gave up, mm -hmm. but I always knew that I'm 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 very stubborn and also I'm and I'm also have um, a, a degree of anxiety if I don't understand something. Right. I've always been the most ignorant person in the room, in, in <laughs> yeah. acting terms. I've always you walked into this room, <laughs> no, no. but I have. You know, when yeah. I, I never I never had an, any academic references points. Okay. To my acting career. Sure. So when I would walk in a room, there would always be people who had more education than me, who had a better education than me and had more reference points to me. And I gave up uh, hiding behind that. I gave up this working class hero crap that I used to come up with where I tried to front them over. You know, I tried to, I tr I tried to be the big man and be the tough East End. Yeah, I, yeah. And in the end, I just one day I realized I just have to ask questions and asked for help, and they gave me help, and they were incredible. 
You wow. know, they would literally sit down and talk to me about things that I didn't understand. And, and these people are very close friends of mine now, you know. So um, I, I learned to do that. I learned to swallow my pride and just ask questions. Mm. And I always ask questions. Now. All the, that's, Twitter is me asking questions, trying to find the answer to things. Mm. And I don't believe... And one of the other things about being an actor is that you realize that when you create a character, there has, the character has to be paradoxical. Mm. There has to be two conflicting elements to the character to make them real. Mm. And that's why I don't like dogmatism in any aspect of my life. It has to be, you have to accept the paradox mm. and then find a way through it. And is that been something, in terms of your acting, what was the thing that, that, that fanned the flame for you? I mean, you say you went to drama school when you were, you graduated from you were 21. Yeah. So clearly there was something leading you towards acting. Was it something that, that happened in your teens? Did you see something? Did you, did you want to, uh, in a way, were you looking for answers even back yeah, then? Yeah, I was. I was looking for that from a very young age, from about 15, 16, I was looking for answers. Yeah. But there's a, there's, there's a load of us from the council estate from Bethnal Green where I was um, brought up. All of, all of us were, we grew up in a very, very weird time. I went back recently and I made a video with a photographer and we went back to to Bethnal Green and we talked about, we went back to the estate with, with a friend of mine who's now an artist. And what we we realised was that most of the fathers on that estate, there were court orders not that they couldn't come 100 yards near the house. Oh, so wow. family life had broken down in some way. Yeah. The women were asserting themselves. It was becoming a matriarchal society. And it was quite, there was, there was a lot of um, violence, domestic violence and a lot of breakdown within families and things going on. And so a lot of us had to find ways to escape. And we did it, a lot of us did it creatively. My friend's an artist. Another friend became a graphic novel writer. Another friend became a, a head teacher at a school. Another person became a businessman. So I'm not the exception and I became mm. an actor. And I think there was a need within us to find the answer to that chaos. Right, yeah. You know, and yeah. I think one of my one of the reasons I became an actor was to find the answer to the chaos. Yeah. I, I ask actors this a lot. And this is a strange question for actors to tackle because I know a lot of actors don't necessarily think that they're good on some level. But when did you know that you had an affinity for this? When did you know that you were good at acting? Uh, is there a moment when, I don't know, you're 12, 13... And you find, oh, I can do accents. So that's interesting. I'll spark something. Yeah, no, I've never been a green, I've never been a, um, what, what you call a green room actor. Yeah. Some actors, you can sit with them and they can entertain you. I've never been one of those. I think when I began to realize that I could do this mm -hmm. was when somebody taught me how to do it. I, literally, somebody showed me, my old drama teacher said to me, if you go, if your if your car breaks down, if it's snowing, raining, sunny weather, whatever the weather, a mechanic will turn up, open up his box, and do the job. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to teach you how to do that as an actor. Wow! So I never, I I, I don't think that I that I'm great. Mm -hmm. I think what somebody taught me was great. Mm -hmm. So you have I, the toolkit. You, you, yeah. yeah, I have the toolkit, and yeah. and I've learned from so many actors. I mean, I spent nine months with Jim Broadbent on on Gangs of New York, and I learned so much with him. And Mike Lee, I learned so much, and Timothy Spores taught me so much, and Benicio taught me so much. So I don't consider myself to be 
great. Yeah. And I don't even know if they consider themselves to be great because it's it somebody taught me how to do it. Yeah. And and the technique is great. I'm yeah. not great. Because I think even the great actors are motivated to a huge extent by by self-doubt and by the idea of wanting to prove themselves constantly, which is why they'll take a huge array of, of roles. Yeah, I think so. I think you do want to create different characters. I, I'm not one of these people who wants to disappear uh, because I don't have self-confidence. I don't think that's the point. I, I think I want to... I'm Going back to, in, in a sense, going back to the Buddhist thing that I was... Mm that helped me through that period of 20 years ago. Mm. One of the great teachings of Buddhism is that, is that there is no self. The self is illusionary. Mm-hmm. So the character of Eddie, if you ask me to play Eddie, Eddie is just a construct. Mm-hmm. It's a psychological construct. Mm-hmm. So I don't play different characters in order to not be Eddie because I don't think Eddie really exists. <laughs> you know what I mean? Eddie yeah. only exists in this situation because I'm with you. And if yeah. I was in, when I was with the driver who drove me here, I was, I was, it was, was a different, different yeah. situation, you know? Yeah. So um, I enjoy exploring different people. I love playing villains. I loved playing Himmler. Playing Himmler was fascinating because I had to say all this, give this terrible speech to Christopher Plummer who was playing the Kaiser. It was a film called The Exception. Mm. And Chris, Christopher played the, the plumber and he was old. The, Christopher Plummer played the Kaiser <laughs> yeah. and, they, and, and he played old Germany and, and Himmler was new Germany and he talks about finding a way to kill disabled children but we can only do it with six an hour and it's not fast enough. But then knowing I've got to perform that, but then you read about him and you read the love letters he sent to his wife and his mistress mm. where he numbered them all. So his wife would say, do you love me? And he'd say, well, I'll refer you back to number 66 and oh that will God. prove to you. So to play that man who can do that brutality and be that clinical about love but also want to be loved, mm. is, to me is fascinating. It's like a musician being asked to play great music, mm. you know. That's the paradox you talked about. Yeah, right? finding yeah. The, the two sides, the, the two sides. Yeah, yeah, of a character. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, was 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 Gangs in New York the moment? Because I'm 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 guess I'm looking really, you know, the moment that you go from being this 27 year old out of work actor who is one of the many profiled in the Empire in that feature, uh, and then there's something that accelerates you and sets you apart from everyone else in that feature. Now you're a great actor that helps, but what was the moment for you that really set you on that path? Was it Gangs of New York? No, I, I think it was probably. Um, well, I did it. I did a year at the National when I was about just after that interview mm-hmm. at the with the Empire. So that probably set me up a bit. I think film wise, it was it was um, Gangster Number One. Oh, really? Yeah, because Gangster Number One was because Paul, who I who had known from theatre, was playing Gangster Number One. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, well, you don't be gangster number two. And they made me the coward. <laughs> and I thought, what a great part, you yeah. know. And I think that helped a lot. Yeah. And then the, the, I, I think that Gangs of New York was a big help. But when Mike did, the year that Mike did Vera Drake, I also did 21 Grams for Alejandro in, in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And those two films came out, one in one side of the Atlantic, one on the other. And they both got Oscar nominations. And I played nice parts in them. So suddenly from then on, my career was both America and the UK. Yes. So I avoided being uh, just a British actor. Mm. I, I became an international actor. And, uh, and you've also become an actor who is unafraid of doing blockbusters as well as obviously yeah, I think you, you, you very much do independent movies. You're still mm. very, you work with really interesting directors. Mm. And you obviously still do uh, TV and, and Ray mm. Donovan as well. But you're not afraid of 
of that dichotomy, I guess, of doing an Entebbe and then a Deadpool 2, which will be coming out in the same month. There's yeah. two, two very different sides of, of you as yeah. well. Yeah, well, they're not, that, they're not that different in experience to me because the guy who, who shot Entebbe, mm-hmm. uh, Jose, um, mm-hmm. when he asked me to do Entebbe, he, uh, he, he was a big fan of Ray Donovan mm-hmm. and he had a certain fix on Entebbe and how he wanted to play it. He wanted the film to be uh, uh, the film to be about people making decisions in a very difficult situation, yes, and the tension that they suffer. So I, I was up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, David Leach had shot Atomic Blonde, mm-hmm. and he had shot Atomic Blonde, and I got to know him very well. And then he phoned me up and said, "Listen, they've asked me to do Deadpool Two. Do you want to come and do a part for me?" So in a sense, it's working with a friend. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. not. I don't go on and think this is a big movie. I go on and David's a mate of mine and he and he asked me to do this part and we created this part and um and it was great for that you can't talk about. That I can't talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I nearly did talk about it. Oh god. This is this is what I do. I really go in for twenty minutes. Yeah. And then get the Deadpool two scoop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but with with a movie where that doesn't exist or with a TV show where it doesn't exist, with Ray Donovan, for example. Uh, season one. What do you read? How do you how do you read? How do you get into Terry that in that way? Uh, well, there's a backstory. Yeah, actually, the, one of the reasons um, Anne Biderman created Ray Donovan, mm-hmm. and she was a big fan of Mike Lee, and she was when they asked me to play Terry, mm-hmm. she wanted to tap into all the techniques that I'd used creating characters of Mike Lee. So in Ray Donovan, there is an incredible backstory. Mm-hmm. And it's very funny, Ray Donovan, because there's an incredible backstory. And yet these men are very inarticulate. So they don't express it vocally. They express it through violence or through, basically through violence. I think we're the worst family you could ever live next door to, really. <laughs> um, also, though, Ray Donovan was what you call, what they call Trojan horse television. Yeah. So when you first watch Ray Donovan, you think it's going to be like Entourage. Mm-hmm. It's going to be all Hollywood and glamorous. And actually, it's not. It's about three brothers from Boston who were sexually abused by priests and now live in Hollywood. Yeah. And Hollywood is, a, is, is the place where people cover up who they really are. Mm. And Ray Donovan's job is to help people cover up who they really are. Mm. And yet his family can't cover up the abuse that they've gone through and they yeah. can't deal with it. And so does that, does that backstory come from you partially? Because uh, it's not the way Mike Lee works to an extent that the actor is as much involved with coming up with the backstory Mike Lee does, yeah. yeah. Well, you work with Mike and you come up with a story and he, you don't know what he's building it towards, what, what, how this fits in with everything else. He yeah. keeps you completely in the dark. So you are creating a character and he works out whether it's conducive to the other things that he's creating and he'll nudge you in certain ways and you don't know you're being manipulated and you just got to let go. With Ray Donovan, you kind of... Uh, we had to kind of get together and with with the showrunner and create this backstory between mm. us all that I think actually is one of the reasons why the show is so successful because you really believe the family. Mm. You really believe that this family have this history. Plus, I look a bit like Liev. I always <laughs> thought I looked like Liev. When I was a kid, I used to burn my action men. And he used to, my action man used to look a certain way. And if I burned him, he looked a different way. And I looked like, if you had an action man of Liev and you burned him, he'd look like me. <laughs> how much would that fetch on eBay I wonder alright Eddie so what, what I'll do is I will ask you these questions that you were asked 20 odd years okay. ago for an oh, Empire magazine alright do you want me to give you your, your, the answer that you gave yes I'd love to hear right. the answer okay. that I gave so Eddie Marsan age 27 Garrett flat in Bethnal Green East London now, you don't have to give your address now but okay. 
still East London or, or do you straddle the Atlantic like a colossus? I, I straddle the Atlantic like a colossus. <laughs> you should live in the Atlantic, by the way. It's, it's really lovely. You could just commute either side. Best job. The answer you gave back then was any job where they put you up in a hotel and treat you like God's gift because next week you're signing on and you haven't got a tenor to your name. Yes, that's pretty, yeah. pretty much true, really. Yeah. Uh, is that still the okay? case? What's, the best, what's the best job for you now? Um, I think uh, I think the best job I, I've had, you know what I've I've loved Ray Donovan. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never thought I would because I thought I'd, I'd, I was going to get tied to a, a TV show. But I've actually loved loved Ray Donovan. Loved creating it with the, with with not only with the actors but with the crew. And yeah. it's been a, a real kind of family affair. And all of our kids have grown up together, and we, we, you know they all play together, and and we, that's been an, an amazing experience for me. Fantastic. All right, so worst job. Uh, you said, this feels like family fortunes. You said, they said, uh, a, fa- a fringe show where three people turned up every night, it was crap. It didn't even get reviewed. Yeah. Do you remember true. that show? Yeah, yeah. Oh, loads of them. There was loads <laughs> like that. There was a couple of them where only my mum turned up. <laughs> Honestly, uh, yeah. Thumbs down from mum. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not good. Uh, And now, does that remain the worst job or has something surpassed it in the years? Oh, actually, you know, jobs where there's lots of CGI. Okay, yeah. CGI drives me mad. I mean, we did, it it was one of the hardest jobs to do with Jack the Giant Slayer because I was being chased by a dragon for two weeks and by a giant for two weeks and actually it was some bloke with with a... a green tennis ball on a pole. <laughs> and for two weeks I was being chased by it. I remember thinking, oh, this is driving me. <laughs> Your acting coach didn't prepare you for that, no, right? No. <laughs> New techniques. Uh, all right, so screen credits back then was Dame Edna's Neighbourhood Watch, The Bill, played the yob who terrorised Sanjay and Gita in EastEnders. Yeah, I played the head of, the head of Wolford BNP. <laughs> you see, I, I, was already, I was already stretching myself even then. <laughs> Uh, okay, so now you could just you could just add any number of the uh, the great films and TV you've made over the years. But I, I'm excited about that. You could go back to EastEnders. I could same character. I could, and you know what? I think them. I I'm, I've got to say this. I think what they do is amazing. Mm. I, I've honestly been with great Hollywood actors, and I think and I think who can get th- get thirty takes and to do a scene, and everyone says they're wonderful. And I think yeah, that bloke who plays Ian Bill, he gets one take. He comes in and nails it and goes home. You do it. You know, big Oscar winners. All right, you go and do it. You go and play Ian Bill and see how good you are. Yeah, Adam Woodyatt, greatest yeah. actor in the world. Uh, uh, ultimate humiliation. You said, on stage in Noonday Demons, my, my loincloth fell off, but I was supposed to be a monk in the desert and no one was supposed to be there, so I was walking around with my bollocks hanging out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Noonday Demons. That probably was my biggest... Uh, that probably was my biggest. Yeah, it's still, it's still my biggest uh, humiliation. I think. Let me, I'm really trying to think. Was there anything else? Um, it's hard to no, beat. No, I tell you, when I started Ray Donovan, I tell you when I started Ray Donovan, uh-huh. and I was supposed to be Liev's, Liev was supposed to be oldest, and I was supposed to be the, the younger than Liev, and I turned up, and Anne Biderman went, "Actually, let's make you the oldest." <laughs> <laughs> That was probably more humiliating. You look like Liev, but melted. So <laughs> we're, we're going to make you the, the, the eldest. <laughs> All right, just a couple more. Uh, how far would you go for that big break? You uh, you said, I wouldn't do anything just to get work. Uh, but what did you do, Eddie? <laughs> how, did you, how did you get your big break? Uh, yeah, I don't... Um, 
I don't know, really. I just stuck it out, I think. Yeah. I think what I did was I stuck it out. Gangster number one. Yeah. Stuck yeah. it out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, daily activity. Sometimes I work for ticket agencies. Otherwise, I write letters and do acting exercises. I only phone my agent when there's something on. Uh, so what's, it, what's, what's your daily routine at the moment? I've got four kids now. So I wake up in the morning. <laughs> That's changed. Um, um, if I can meditate, I will meditate. Uh-huh. And I'm not as disciplined as I was because when you've got four kids, you, you can't do it as much. I get the kids to school, uh-huh. walk the dogs. Uh, if I'm doing Ray Donovan, I get... I tell you what, if I'm doing Ray Donovan, I fly... Uh, I usually wake up about three or four in the morning because I'm uh-huh. always jet-lagged. Uh-huh. And I have a, a guy, uh, a boxing trainer, who is my point of reference for Terry. Uh-huh. And we, we will meet up. Robert Downey Jr. has a private gym in L.A., and um, he lets me use it. <laughs> and I can go there, and it's really, really private and quiet, and no one knows where it is, and it's not flash at all. Uh-huh. I mean, it's really, but it's rough and ready, and it's great. And we get there at like four in the morning. Me and a guy called Rob Garcia, his name is, who okay. is a boxing conditioning coach for uh, Oscar De La Hoya. And he's, mm-hmm. a, he's a really good friend of mine. And we go there, and we train for an hour every morning, and then I go to set. But I need to do it because I have to, as Terry, I have to shake all the time. Mm-hmm. So I need to work on the physicality because I'm, or my back would be out terribly. I have to ask, how do you persuade Robert Downey Jr. to let you use his gym? Do you just sidle up to him and go, hey, Bobby? No, you, I, I actually, <laughs> no, I, um, no, Rob, no, Rob knows him. Yeah. Um, well, Rob knows loads of the guys who, know, who kind of who know oh, so him. It's from Rob and not from Rob you said, working Rob with. Rob said, okay. I was training in one gym. Uh-huh. Um, I was actually training in one gym where Canelo, this um, this Mexican middleweight, was was training. It was okay. great to be there, but it, we were kind of running out of space. <laughs> and also, I like to get there really early in the morning, like yeah. three or four in the morning. Yeah. And then Rob said, actually, Robert Downey Jr. has got a gym, and, and I was chatting to him. And he said, I'll tell Eddie just to pop down and use my gym. So <laughs> I did. He's very kind. I thought the Sherlock Holmes network had, uh, had yeah, kicked in. Yeah, it is. Tell Lestrade to pop in. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime he likes. All uh, right, two last ones. Acting philosophy. You said then, hard work and your ingenuity are what matter. Everything else is transient. Do you, do you stand by that? Yes, it's still the same. Okay, yeah. Yeah. excellent. And then the last thing was, how accurate is with nail? And you said it's so accurate, that's why it's so funny. It is. It is so accurate. Do and we, it is so funny. And it's so funny. So many funny things happen yeah. like that. And I think you have to make them laugh because you have to find the funny side of it or you, you despair and give up. <laughs> so it's like funerals. Sometimes you have a great laugh at a funeral, you know, because it's because life is, as soon as you're faced with the despair of life, you, you, you can choose to find it funny. A good note on which to bow out. Uh, Eddie Marsan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank things. you. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so that was Eddie Marsan, and we can talk about Eddie Marsan when Deadpool 2 comes out, not before. Uh, reviewing next week in next week's show, and also keeping peeled for our Deadpool 2 spoiler special with the film star, producer, and writer Ryan Reynolds dishing the beans. That's what you say, isn't it? Dishing the beans on that movie. That'll be up, hmm, I'm guessing mm, Monday, the 21st of May. We'll aim for that. But uh, do keep them peeled just in case we change that. But there you go. Uh, but now it is time to start reviewing this week's films. Helen, you're going to kick things off with a French revenge thriller. Uh, what's it called? 
Um, it's called French. Uh, no, it's it's called Revenge. I thought it was called La Revenge <laughs> or French Revenge. I think it's just Revenge, uh, revenge. In, fr- in French. Is this a remake of the Kevin Costner? No, this is no relation to, ah. or, or nor is it relation to the Sharon Carter starring TV show. This <laughs> is uh, a film from Coralie Fargia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, uh, starring Matilda Lutz uh, as a girl called Jen. And we meet Jen stepping off a hol- helicopter, sucking on a lollipop, looking like Lolita, with her older, very rich, very married boyfriend, uh, Richard, who's played by Kevin Janssens. Um, and they are basically in the middle of nowhere, literally nowhere, luxury v- villa in the middle of the desert um, for a dirty weekend. Uh, but only for a couple of nights because his friends are planning to join him and then they're all going hunting. His friends turn up early. Things go a bit wrong. They go very violently, horribly wrong, in fact. And, um, well, then it really gets really, really violent. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't know how much I want to say. This well, is I, essentially, a, I think I can yeah. say this is a rape-revenge thriller and those have been around for ages, of course. Last House on the Left, um, Wild Strawberries. Like this is a, this is a thing that that exists mm. as a genre. It is often exploitative. It is often grotesque. Uh, this one, because I think it's directed by women, or at least partly because it's directed by women, um, is very different. So it does sort of turn the camera on her in quite a leering way to begin with and then it flips gradually as she flips from seeing herself as -hmm. essentially a sex object Mm -hmm. to seeing herself as something else it's almost supernatural the way that the film deals with this and it is really compelling now to be clear there is a huge amount of upsetting material in this there is so much blood you would not believe it like so much blood like you're like where did all the blood come from that's so much blood um (laughs) But it is really, really good. This is very much worth your time. Uh, Lutz is absolutely fantastic and she deserves to have a huge career off the back of this. There you go. Uh, well done, Lutz. Uh, recovering after 30 Rock got cancelled. Or is that a different Lutz? It's a different Lutz. It's a, different it's a Matilda. Lutz. Matilda it's Lutz. A, so, so I always get confused. Four stars then for Revenge or Revenge. And uh, next, Jimbo is going to tell us about Anon. Or as I say in France, Anon. Yes, it literally Anon. means I know. <laughs> No. Uh, this is a new film from Andrew Nichol. It is his late, latest dystopian science fiction. How uh, will we know Andrew Nichol? Uh, following in the footsteps of his films The Truman Show and Gattaca and uh, Simone and in also time. In Time with Justin Timberlake. Um, Sim one, surely. <laughs> Simon, Simon, Simon. Yeah, so this, is, uh, this takes place in a slightly near future world in which everyone is on Facebook. Uh, by which I mean everyone's memories are digitally uploaded to the cloud, not just, you know, pictures of what they've had for lunch and, you know, Nick's pictures of trees on Instagram. It's great content. Um, yeah, it is great content. Uh, so, so this is a world where everyone's plugged into this sort of supernet and all their experiences are uploaded to the cloud. So crime, while not extinct, is certainly short-lived because if someone does a crime, they can just look at their memory record and see them committing the crime, which means police have a fairly easy life. Um, However, this all changes when Detective Sal Freeland, which is uh, Clive Owen, uh, he has to track down a killer who not only gets away with murder, but hacks the cloud so Ah. that people's memory of their death is seen through the killer's eyes. Mm. So it's all... There was an 80s film called Fear, which had, I think, Ali Sheedy in it. It had a slightly similar presence, but it was a psychic. He would murder people, but he would make someone see the murder through... Yeah? Okay. 
good times. There's nothing like that film other than that. Uh, so, 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 yes, so to, to get into this, to understand what's happening to these memories, Clive Owen, sees, he, he tracks down a hacker. There's a sort of underground uh, illicit hacking uh, industry where people essentially hack people's memories to take away crimes if they committed an affair to get it out of their minds so they can't be caught uh, and this is in the form of someone simply known as Anon which is Amanda Seyfried uh-huh. uh, and what follows is a sort of a whodunit detective drama which isn't anywhere near as compelling as the world it's set in sadly um, it's loads of fun the, the like exploring the world seeing how it all works is fascinating especially with all the talk of privacy that we're dealing with currently it feels quite prescient it feels very very timely uh, and not a little bit worrying about the um the exploitation of your data and what mm. it can be used for like there's a it, there's a, an ar interface which everyone has so when they walk down the street they see uh and it's, it's done in a very sort of minimalist sort of white wireframe uh sort of aesthetic and uh, so if i walked down the street you would say helen helen o'hara film critic obsessed with hamilton you know that would come up as i walk past you and it would Fair. say who you are and like if i look at a, a computer it would say dell laptop available now for x matter so everything has advertising and stuff put into it and you get wikipedia entries for stuff you look at so they're constantly bombarding with stimulus so it's a very interesting idea um but that is really the high point of the film the rest of it it's just quite it's quite prosaic the mystery isn't particularly exciting uh, and when it it's not particularly clever when it unfolds, but it's worth it's worth watching because the performance is great, the world is fun, but it's you know it's not going to set your pants on fire. Good, which you know <laughs> is in a positive way. If we're talking hot tattoo facts this week, yes, Amanda Seyfried has the word minge tattooed on her foot. Yes, no, no, no. So that's an interesting tattoo fact for you there. Yeah, three stars for Anon. Three stars. The Avengers got tattoos this week. They did. They, they did. did. They're really cool. Coolly cool really designed cool. a things, which I was surprised Helen didn't get as well. I, I'll be honest. There, there was a moment. Where I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's just why you've got. Yeah. No, I, but I had made, I had made the appointment before this yeah. came along, but it's got it's got the A for Avengers. It's got a six in there for the original six. You and you can, see, they all did it on the tattoo artist as well. Uh, yeah, I wonder if he wanted that. that. Each of them drew a line. <laughs> He looked. A I mean, they better. may have held him down and done it. I don't know if it was. <laughs> yeah. if it was voluntary. He looked a bit surprised. Who, yeah. who got it? Downey. Yeah. Everyone except Ruffalo. No, Evans wasn't there. I don't think. No, I don't, yeah, I don't think everyone was, was there. I no. thought. I thought it was uh, only uh, Sky the Hulk who said no. It was original. Original Avengers. Yeah. Well, you can't tattoo the Hulk skin. You wouldn't have a needle sharp enough. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. So who was it? Because you said two people were not there, but five people got it, but all the original Avengers got it except for one. <laughs> so your math is way off. So Groot was not there. Groot was not Rocket there. Rocket was not there. Oh my god. Batman wasn't I'm, there either. I'm, yeah. I'm super confused. Yeah. I will ask again. Who got the tattoos? <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Yes. Chris Hemsworth. Yes. yes. Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, somebody else. Hawkeye. Hawkeye. <laughs> Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner. That's where Hawkeye is. He was allowed one, that's surprising. Oh, come on. Come on, guys. Um, and who else? Well, uh, Donnie Jr. hashtagged Chris Evans in it, even though he's not in the picture. So he may have gotten his... He he's obviously in New York. My understanding the is the tattooist visited them independently. They didn't get them all done at the same time. Well, there's four of them in the picture with the tattooist. Yeah. So but, no, uh, that would not lend itself to your theory. <laughs> <laughs> you buffoon. So we know so, <laughs> anywhere between four and six Avengers got tattoos. Yes. And Helen might have been one of them. I All wasn't, right. though. Oh, no, she was busy stealing the Iron Man costume. There are the other films to time. discuss. Are you annoyed that you were not invited? <laughs> to get a tattoo with <laughs> the Avengers. If Robert Downey Jr. asked you to get an Avengers tattoo, you would? No. What if, what if Robert Downey Jr. offered to tattoo you for the Avengers? No. <laughs> 
What if Jeremy ran it? No. Let's, yes. move, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Three also stars for three stars for Nolan. Also out this week is Entebbe. Entebbe. Yes. yes. The true story of the 1976 plane hijacking of the Air France flight from somewhere from Tel Aviv to somewhere. Yeah. Uh, does, yes. Yeah. How many seats were there? It's just not important. Um, to Paris, I believe. Yes. So this is uh, this stars Daniel Brühl and Rosamund Pike. It's directed by Jose Padilla. Um, I would be fascinated to have been there at the board meeting where they pitched this film, where someone said, I've got a really good idea for a hijacking movie, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, what happens? Well, they sit in an airport waiting room (laughs) for seven days. Oh, brilliant, what happens? Well, nothing, really. They just sit there. Right, great, does does anyone die? Does anything, any action? No, no, really, they just sort of hang about and occasionally discuss politics. Well, okay, what happens? Well, eventually, the IDF send in a crack team of commandos to rescue them, in a scene that takes about two minutes. Brilliant. So what are we going to do? Okay, what, so bear, bear with me. We're going to shoot it in slow motion and intercut it, wait for it, with interpretative Israeli dance. Yes! <laughs> and that is the climax of this film. I was just about to pitch film. this film. And someone's already done it. And that ah. is literally what happens. It is an action sequence intercut with interpretative dance, which consists predominantly of people falling off chairs. I actually quite like that dance. <laughs> I do. I thought it was. I thought it was a good dance, um, and uh, I quite enjoyed the weirdness of this film and the the fact of the hostage takers having as much of a breakdown, really, as the hostages. Which I mean, I find interesting. I didn't think it was terrible, but it was certainly tedious. <laughs> two stars. Two, two stars. stars to Entebbe. But if you love interpretative dance, give it an extra two. Five. So, yeah, yeah. Dance, all the all the dancing. Go for it. And if you love chairs and falling off them, then you really should see this film. And also out this week, there's a whole bunch of films out this week, mm. uh, including Sherlock Gnomes. Yes, mm. that's out. It that's is happening. Yes. That's a that's an actual film that exists. Word and, is surprisingly good. And word is surprisingly good on Sherlock Gnomes. Is it? Yeah. Is yeah. it though? No, it is. Is it though? I've talked to a few people who went on the, to the Sunday morning screening. Was and were, one of them Elton John? Were surprisingly <laughs> charmed by the whole thing. Was the other one James McAvoy? <laughs> I'm yeah. hoping the next uh, instalment in this series is Game of Gnomes. I yes. think they're building they're building to it. <laughs> Um, even now, they're they're trying to find things that rhyme with gnome. All the gnomes got matching tattoos this week. Did you see that? No. No? No. Okay. So, um, uh, also out this week is how they talk to girls at parties, which I thought was a really helpful thing. Yeah. I went along. I thought this is going to tell me how... Finally. Obviously, I don't need it anymore. No. Because I'm... Your wife. I'm married up, ladies. Sorry. Off the market. Uh, but, like, old me, who never went to parties... right. Could have done with, like, some tips on how to talk to girls, like, how you doing? And all sort of stuff. You wow, know. that yeah. would have super worked. Yeah. Yeah. You mm. old smoothie. <laughs> mm. Amanda Seyfried has the word minge tattooed on her foot. That's a terrible chat up it line. It is no? not good. <laughs> okay. do, not, do not do that. Anyway, so how to talk to girls at parties is, in fact... I love you! That's what I intended to do at parties. <laughs> I would just go up to them and go, Hello! I'm Chris! And then I would walk away. So the film yes. that we're talking about. Yes. Oh, right, okay. The film. Sorry, go is, on. Yes. Uh, yes. This, so this is based on a short story by Neil Gaiman, um, and it is set among a group of wannabe punk rockers, certainly punk fans, let's say, in 1977 Croydon, probably with Trevor across town somewhere playing King Lear. Indeed. Yes. His, his Lear was a toy to Croydon. My wife's from Croydon. Is she? Yeah. Well, I, I discerned that fact when I talked to her at a party. Amazing, Chris. Um, but uh, this is not about you and your wife meeting, thank goodness. Um, no. This is, of course, the story of um, these guys 
going to a party um, at, a, at a house. They get a bit, bit lost on the way. They end up at this house. There's strange music coming from it, so they're drawn in. And the house is full of odd people. And they try to mingle and chat to these people and maybe, you know, pull. And, uh, and it only gradually becomes clear to at least maybe one of them that yeah. these people are, are maybe cult. There may be a cult. Could be a cult. Could be a cult. Could be. Um, could be a suicide cult of some sort. It could seems be. a bit weird and yep. end of daisy. Or it could be that they are aliens. Uh. Um, or Americans. They're not really clear. Alien or American. It's one of the two. Um, Elle Fanning is there. She seems kind of American. Yeah. They kind of go with that. Yeah. Big mistake. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it, it's it's a very, very odd film. Yes. I mean, Nicole Kidman is in it as a yes. punk queen wannabe person. Yeah. A Buddhist, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. With a with an with a an accent that I didn't think was terrible. No, I thought it was. I thought it was good, but it's weird coming out of Nicole Kidman's mouth. Um, but she's she's committed to her punkness, and she looks the part. Um, Ruth Wilson's in there. Really, really, just good supporting cast. Everyone's game. Um, but it's a weird film. Yeah, I mean, they they really you know they give it their all, don't they? But this is directed by John Cameron Mitchell, who directed mm-hmm. Hedwig and the Angry Inch uh, and Short Bus. And uh, you know, it's a very bizarre film. But honestly, but that's what he does. And if you're you know if you're yeah. up for it, I think you'll be yeah. you'll enjoy it. Uh, so two stars in for How to Talk to Girls at Parties. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast, sponsored by Sky Cinema. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by. Amanda Appington, hopefully here in the studio, being part of the pod team. Uh, she is, of course, a star of BBC Sherlock and Netflix is safe as well. And keep peeled also for our Deadpool 2 spoiler special, Ryan Reynolds, and our solo, a Star Wars story spoiler special, hopefully with director Ron Howard. That'll be out at some point as well. Until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Nick. Uh, toodle pip. And it's goodbye from Helen. Toodle. And it's goodbye from me. I am off to get Where's the Handle tattooed onto my face. <laughs> Where's the needle? Where is it? Jim, I must find the needle. Help me find the needle. <clears throat> really hurts the throat. It hurts oh. the ears also. Oh, God. You were supposed to moisturise. <laughs> <laughs> you were supposed to protect my skin. You were... Uh, where's the axe? Um, okay, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>